we have an economy that's based on using the sustenance of children, children now and children that are going to be born in the future, to feed the present population, especially the present ruling class. Basically, this is the system of slavery that's been at the heart of all government institutions and uh, economic systems since the beginning. Ladies and gentlemen, I think at this point, anything that they thought they had under their control is long gone. I think at this point it has spiraled out of control and that the the, uh, future is wide open. So, not as scary as the last time we talked, but still pretty scary. Well, look, hey, scary (laughs) is relative, isn't it? Scary is relative because a lot of things have happened since the last time we talked that were scary at the time to think about, and now they've happened, and we're used to it. This is something, like I said, it's bigger than they are. They can't control it. These are primal forces of nature, and uh, these are hidden patterns of reality that play themselves out in history. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Before we dive into this week's program, first, please allow me to tip my cap and thank the man who provided the theme music for this week's program. His name is Pete Diggins, and his website is www.orophonic.com. And you spell that A-U-R-O-P-H-O-N-I-C dot com. Big, big thanks to you, Pete, for the awesome theme music. We'll be using it here on the program for the next few weeks and months, much like we did with our buddy Ian's tune. And for all those musicians out there who are listening to the program and who may want to contribute a song to a future series of BOA Audio episodes, you can do that by simply writing to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Now, let's get down to business on this week's installment of BOA Audio. It is the long-awaited return to the program of razor-sharp esoteric researcher Tracy Twyman. And this time around, she's going to be talking about her new book, Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge, which examines the connection between alchemy and economics. Truly some mind-bending stuff here, and it is quite a lengthy conversation. It goes over two hours and covers a whole bunch of different stuff. Some of the big tent poles we're going to be covering are not just this alchemical economic connection, but also the current state of the economic crisis and what's going on in the economy today and where things may be headed. In the discussion on alchemics, as Tracy calls it, We'll find out how alchemical ideas seem to form the basis for key elements of our current economic system. We'll learn about concepts like the Golden Age of Saturn, the Lord of the Earth, and specifically how child sacrifice plays a key role in both ancient alchemy and our current world. Along the way, of course, we're going to journey down some side roads that include the technology of ancient civilizations, the potential for human organs to be used as economic instruments, 2012, and, as always, tons and tons more. 
Much like when other guests make their BOA audio return, this episode goes from interview to conversation to jam session over the course of these two plus hours. So strap yourself in and get ready for a fascinating and wild ride. Altogether, really, it is a mind-bending edition of the program that strives to glimpse at the true underpinnings that influence our world with one of the sharpest minds in esoterica today, Tracy Twyman. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Tracy Twyman, allow me to provide you with a little background on her. Tracy Twyman has been writing about alternative history and the occult for 14 years. She's the author of The Merovingian Mythos, Solomon's Treasure, and Mind Control, Sex Slaves, and the CIA. She's also the former editor of Dagobert's Revenge magazine, a journal of esoteric history that was published from 1996 to 2003. Her latest book is Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge, and you can find out more about her at www.tracyrtwyman.com, T-R-A-C-Y-R-T-W-Y-M-A-N.com, and there you can find out more about her books and read a whole bunch of articles by Tracy Twyman dealing with the emerging police state, the current financial crisis, and a whole bunch of other cool alconomical topics. And with all that said, let's get down to business, my friends, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 20th, 2011. Tracy Twyman talking about the connection between alchemy and the economy on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Really excited to be bringing back our guest this week, Tracy Twyman. She was on the program back in Season 4, and, you know, we talk about a lot of weird stuff on here on this program. We talk a lot about some scary stuff, but she talks about some insanely scary material that is real, real scary stuff, because it's really what's going on in the world right now with the economy and really the roots of all these problems we're dealing with. And in a lot of ways, as I said, that stuff is a lot scarier than than uh, aliens and Bigfoot and stuff like that. So I enjoyed it quite a bit when we talked the first time around. I know a lot of the listeners did as well because they've been clamoring for her return to the program, which is uh, what we're doing here this week on the show. She has just put out a new book. It's in ebook form, and I think she may be uh, sort of reissuing it as an expanded edition. We'll find out about that in a moment. It's called Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge. And it is some compelling stuff. It is really thought-provoking and and really eye-opening to me. So I'm excited to explore some of the concepts that she puts forward in the book. And really, having read this and having read a lot of her previous stuff, i got to say, folks, she is one of the sharpest cookies in the esoteric field, genre for genre, let's say. Uh, you know, she is just so well-versed in so many really finer details and arcane details with regards to a whole bunch of stuff that it amazes me. And as I was saying to her before we started the show here, I'd have to read this book five or six times before I could be as quick as she is with these details and and this information. So I'm going to do my best to keep up with her, and I'm going to make her slow down for all of us. Don't worry, guys. Anyway, I could ramble all day because I'm very excited to have her on the show. Tracy Twyman, welcome back to BOA Audio. Let's dig on in. Oh, thank you so much, Jim. It's nice to be on again. I guess, well, we had you on a couple of years ago. Let's just sort of do a catch-up. What have you been up to in the last couple of years, uh, aside obviously from the new book here? Um, you know, what's been going on with Tracy Twyman since, uh, what was it, 2009? Well, um, really, I've been immersing myself in research. And, uh, you know, the last time we talked, I had 
just really started re-immersing myself in economics because at that time we were right in the throes of the crash of 2008. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had written a, a book previously to that discussion called Solomon's Treasure where I was um, examining the what I call the alchemical nature of our economy, which is uh, which utilizes fiat currency, which is you know um, money created out of nothing by banks with the sanction of government, and uh, you know at that time we were talking about um, comparisons between that process of creating money out of nothing and alchemy, and and uh, you know we talked about symbols on the dollar bill that sort of point to alchemical concepts and mm -hmm. and uh, the dollar sign itself, and you know so anyway yeah we were talking about what was going on. Back then, I was I was uh, I had decided that I was going to re-explore the concept of economic alchemy, or as I call it, alchemics. Ah, <laughs> and, I like uh, that. Nice. And uh, you know, so over the last couple of years since we last talked, I've been you know following current events, uh, which is of course overwhelming. Uh, everything we talked about um, in 2008 has just you know gotten worse you know we were talking we were describing the situation then of, of what seemed like impending uh hyperinflation currency collapse uh and of course just collapse of financial systems in general debt potential debt defaults by governments mm -hmm. and uh, at that time i think the audience may have felt like it was a bit alarmist you know we were <laughs> of course in the in the throes of a, a big financial collapse, but everyone, all the authorities were telling us that, you know, if you just bail out the banks um, in a couple months, everything's going to be fine. And, um, you know, I think we were we were predicting several years of turmoil and doom. And, uh, you know, I was talking about, the, like I said, the possibility of... Uh, of governments literally defaulting on their debt and, you know, what might be the fallout of that. And that's all been happening. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, we're sort of like, you know, picking up where we had left off almost a couple of years ago. We're, we're still here, though. We're still standing, Tracy. You and I are still, you know, we're, we're not like destitute or on the streets, as far as I know. So I know I'm not, and you're doing all right. So, I mean, is the, is the worst? Right. No, I'm not doing all right, and I don't know if you are. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not doing great, can... but, I mean, uh, you know, I'm hanging in there. Well, okay, yeah, there's, there's a, we're still breathing. Um, it's not like, uh, you know, I guess Ireland or Iceland, these are governments that have defaulted and, uh, well, there's a difference between Ireland and Iceland. I, Iceland decided not to repay the banks the full amount that they were demanding, or it was not even repay. They were, they were demanding basically to be completely bailed out of what of the consequences of their own actions, their own, you know, bad investments. And uh, Iceland said no, and, you know, they went through a period of um, difficulty, difficulty getting cheap imports and things like that because their currency uh, was weak. Their their bonds weren't uh, considered high rate for a while, but they bounced back pretty quickly. They're They're getting better. Um, Ireland, Greece, and some of these other countries have accepted um, austerity measure uh, requirements from the IMF. The IMF is this international, like just just like the Federal Reserve, really. It's kind of it's the international agency, I guess, appointed <laughs> mainly by uh, Anglo-American bankers in the beginning, uh, you know, creating this thing, and it, it, it attempts to control. 
all of the different currencies around the world that participate in, in this international currency system, of which the dollar is supposed to be the reserve currency, although that's starting to change. And uh, at any rate, they, they, when, it, when countries start to have problems with, their, uh, with the value of their currency, have, they have problems paying their um, bondholders for their treasury debt. Um, the IMF will come in and tell them how they need to change things in order to, you know, get their fiscal house in order. Yeah. And they're literally they, – they boss them around. They, they, they act like they own the place. And they tell them, you have to – usually this is what they do with austerity measures. They come in and they say, you have to lower uh, public expenditures. And in Europe, you know, so much of the uh, domestic economy is based on that. So many people work for – the government or are receiving benefits from the government and dependent on them. Yeah. Well, the IMF will come in and, and tell them, you have to immediately lower that considerably and raise taxes on everyone. And so that's why, you know, all of a sudden <laughs> the rug gets pulled out from under you if you're in Greece or Ireland. And, uh, and that's why they're rioting in, in the streets or have been. And, uh, you know, that's why they're, they're, they are facing a very difficult future if they don't I don't know, overthrow their governments, do something to <laughs> re well, that's, it's literally happening, you know, as, as we that's speak true. right now. That's true, that's true, yeah. Well, I mean, is it going to get worse for us? I mean, I, I, I fear, I, I mean, I feel for the Irish and the, and the Greek people and all that, but what about us Americans? Uh, is, is, the, is the worst yet to come still? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the <laughs> the um, collapse of the dollar, or, you know, it's going to, what it's, what's happening is it's being relegated to just another currency as opposed to being the, you know, the standard, the, the make-believe gold that is at the heart of the whole international alchemical system. Um, the dollar was made to function as good as gold. In other words, originally there was a, there was this Bretton Woods agreement. That it was an international uh, currency agreement between the central banks of all these different countries that they would use the dollar is their reserve currency, and what that means is that um, they would hold it to, in their own central banks as backing for their own currencies, as if it was gold. That's the that's the role that gold used to play in the global economy prior to World War II. And uh, after the World War II, they made this agreement that they would pretend that the dollar, which is printed out of nothing by the government, by the United States government, or well, by the Federal Reserve, uh, which isn't really the government, at any rate, you know, this thing that's printed out of, out of nothing, that's, that's alchemically created through magic, uh, is taking the place of gold in the international, in international currency. Uh -huh. And so when they uh, need to redeem those, uh, well, okay, when, when they want to turn it into something that's valuable to them, we used to have an agreement that, uh, they could, they could redeem those dollars for gold. And at a certain point in the 70s, uh, Nixon decided to change that. It was We were running out of gold. Everyone was turning in their dollars for gold because their dollars were starting to become worthless. You know, we were having a, a, an expansion of uh, major inflation at that point. And, uh, so that, and that's when Nixon decided he was just going to tell everyone that, no, you can't redeem your dollars for gold anymore. Now dollars just, they have no relationship to gold, technically. You know, they're yeah. uh, free-floating. So at any rate, I'm just I'm just describing how you know dollars are have been the artificial gold of the system for a long time, and uh, it's getting to the point now where a lot of countries don't want to 
uh, have that sort of burden to deal with. Because what's really happening is in order to maintain the dollar's uh, status, and it, it has to maintain a certain value, you know, within the international markets, they have to tweak all these other indices in order to maintain that. And, and the, the government and the Federal Reserve and several some banks, including J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, are involved in tweaking all of these uh, indices behind the scenes to try to maintain the value of the dollar. And there's so much uh, relationship, really, between that and current events. It, it, it just so happens that so many times when there's a, a military invasion or uh, some important, you know, thing that happens in, in uh, the news, it, it, it turns out that it just so happens to work to the advantage of the United States and the value of the U.S. dollar. And, you know, it would be kind of uh, laborious to go through them all, but it's easy to – you can talk about um, 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq. And the, the maintaining the value of oil is very important, or the, the relationship, the price relationship between oil and dollars. There's sort of an implied backing there. That's why they're called petrodollars. You know, that's yeah. the value of uh, – that's the value in dollars that the oil is being held by these uh, oil-producing countries. And when oil goes high, when it when it costs a lot of dollars to buy oil, then you know that's when you can say that the value of the do- dollar is really really starting to decline. So back when we were talking in 2008, we were in this period where um, gas. I guess it had finally started to go down a little bit, but we had just been going through this uh, summer of just insane gas prices. And I'm sure you remember sort of the ripple effect that happened there, where everything then was affected because the price of fuel is really the basis of everything else. You know, you have to, in order to get goods around the world, you have to be able to fuel the people. Yeah, transport them and everything else, yeah. So, you know, that's, you know, a lot of people worry about peak oil, and that's the issue there, is if oil gets too expensive to take out of the ground and refine, then, you know, everything else starts to break down. It's like no longer economically worth it to, you know, bring goods, say, for instance, on a truck all the way across a continent or to um, even, in some cases, fly them or or ship them on a boat across oceans. I mean, right now, our economy is so based on... um, on international commerce, and, and if you think about it, there's just some amazing things going on right now. Like sometimes if you go to the supermarket, you'll buy some apples, right? Those apples may have been grown, you know, in the United States, or they may have been grown in Mexico or something, but then they'll be shipped to China where they get waxed by, you know, Chinese corporate slaves working for pennies a day. And then they ship them all the way back here to sell them to us. And if you think about how much an apple is, you know, not very much money usually, and how it was somehow profitable to someone to go through all of that and all, how much fuel was spent doing that, uh, you know, and that's happening everywhere. Like if you buy a product, so many, so many times there'll, there'll be, you know, the item itself was made in China and then it might be brought here or somewhere else to go do something else to the item. And then they pack, might ship it back to China to package it. And then they finally ship it to Mexico where it's put on a truck and driven by a, a Mexican truck driver up the, the NAFTA superhighway and to, to deliver <laughs> to American Walmarts. 
And, you know, somehow that's profitable. The, the reason why it's profitable is really because of the, the um, relationship that the U.S. dollar has to all these other currencies. It's the, the whole global supply chain and international currency markets are being manipulated to make this happen. So the, the, the goal of the Bretton Woods Agreement they, they, and, and the creation of the World Trade Organization, all that happened at the same time. They said that the goal was to create the most efficient uh, global supply chain that that you could have. You know, they have like this mathematical formula that they're trying to meet where everything can be produced and sold and distributed in the most efficient way. And, you know, that includes trying to get the price of human labor down as much as possible relative to the dollar. <laughs> so that's why, you know, it's, it's complicated, but it, it, when you, when you look at, at the history of all of these international economic policy decisions that have been made since the 40s, you can see that this is, they've uh, deliberately or engineered it the way it is now. And the way it is now is so dependent on being able to ship these goods all over the world with very little cost. And, you know, if you can't do that, then, well, you know, it's not like the world's going to end. It's just that it has to change uh adjust to that you know you got to have more domestic production and stuff like that oh tracy you're always scaring me on here with these what? dark outlook on the <laughs> why can't they just grow the apples in america and sell them who needs them waxed yeah that's a good idea well you know, maybe <laughs> well, I, I don't even wax but oh. you know why can't they yeah, why exactly. can't we wax them oh man we're gonna well, have yeah, to yeah. eventually is that kind of what's gonna happen it's gonna end up like you know we're just going to stop being able to ship things all over the place and start making them here because it's cheaper to make it here? Well, here's one thing that I think has changed since the last time we talked. Okay. I was very pessimistic in general last time we talked, as, as in, you know, the fix is in. You know, there's no way out of just descending into economic slavery, descending into everyone, you know, everyone's currency collapsing, everyone living in a depression, and everyone being indebted to banks and governments to the point where they're just miserable debt slaves. And that's still, you know, a potential future, very, very much a potential future. Okay. But what's happening now is that, you know, people are um, becoming aware of what's happening around them. Also, more people with money, with wealth, people in positions of power are waking up to it as well and, you know, not necessarily wanting to go along with it. And whereas I would say that in 2008, we were dealing with what someone, someone, it was someone's idea of a managed collapse. I think, you know, they had, it was all part of a process to try to wean us into a different international currency system, one with a, uh, a real international currency produced by the IMF, the SDR, as they call it, yeah. not the dollar. And so I, I really think that, you know, and not to sound too conspiratorial, but, you know, it, these things can be very easily controlled from the top by uh, central banks colluding with governments. Uh, well, banks colluding with governments through central banks, I guess you would say. Yeah. But it's like, I, I really think that, uh, you know, this thing has been engineered, not every single step of the way, but uh, in a broad sense. Uh, since the 40s, and to, to try to bring the whole world into an international currency system with the dollar and then wean them off the dollar and, um, you know, remake it yet again.
into a unified, and, like a one world dollar. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, yeah, I think that the, the people who were doing that, you know, I'm sure they had some sort of ideology where they, uh, can justify it as they think that they're helping everyone. The the the, the uh, justification of Bretton Woods and everything, all the international agreements that happened at that time were that they were going to prevent uh, another world war from happening. That if you can make everyone economically mutually interdependent, that means that any sort of uh, war or even trade war that you allow to break out would be mutually destructive. Which is why, even though, you know, there is sort of a trade war happening between the U.S. and uh, China, neither one of them wants the other to collapse fully because, you know, China owns a whole bunch of our bonds. They don't want them to become worthless. And, you know, we want them to keep buying our bonds, so we want them to have a healthy economy. And that was the goal of, uh, that was the so-called good reason behind uh, Bretton Woods. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, what it, what it really is is... Um, people who are already in positions of power and have lots of money trying to use that money and power to consolidate their wealth and make it easier to manage and get more of it. And so, you know, that I those are the people, those are the elite moneyed families that, you know, just like the conspiracy theorists say, they've been behind everything for, for some time now, behind the manipulation of currencies and governments. Wow. And uh, now, anyway, uh, at that time, I, I thought that we were in a collapse that was that was being caused and managed. Well, I think at this point, anything that they thought they had under their control is long gone. I think at this point, it has spiraled out of control, and that the the uh, future is wide open. In other words, we we are seeing social revolutions happen right now, and the, who knows what's going to come of that. But it could be entirely different from the world order that we had before. All right. <laughs> we need like a world revolution against this economic system, which is sort of uh, to, to dig into the book here, uh, Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge. You introduce some sort of big ideas here to what we're seeing going on in the world, I guess is the best way to put it. And that's not even very <laughs> well put. Uh, but it, you introduced some interesting ideas that, that I never really considered or had thought of. You sort of like do a really good job of stepping outside of the of the workaday bubble to explain how the very economy by which, you know, we all participate is – as you like to say, sort of alchemical, has alchemical roots to it, has a lot of uh, strange alchemy going on. And uh, what I thought was really – well, I guess before we sort of dig into the to the big meat of the of the book, why don't you sort of summarize, I guess you could say, the main idea behind Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge. Okay. Well, um, I am taking my study of alchemics, the, the alchemical nature of the fiat currency economy, and actually the, the and the alchemical nature of just the history of money as, in general – uh, taking it to another level and exploring specifically the alchemical process itself, the, the, the steps in that process, and how they are in some ways analogous to the things that are happening in the global economy. I'm really I'm making metaphors, but in alchemy, it's it really utilizes a lot of metaphors, having harkening back to uh, you know different ancient mythologies in the Bible. And in, in Greek mythology, they draw, draw a lot from that. And these, these alchemical manuscripts, the, the source of the, the whole body of knowledge of alchemy, 
uh, written in medieval times and early up to, I would say, early Renaissance times. They, they're written in really dense code, and I would say that I don't trust anyone who claims that they've decoded them or, or any one of them. I think that, uh, you know, they're written in such code that almost no one has decoded them, and if they have, they haven't published it, you know. Yeah. But I've, I had my own crack at it with this, uh, with this recent study I did for the book. And what I found was that um, they seem to be talking about okay, there's these two things. The, the, there's mercury and there's lead in the process of alchemy. They say, and these are they they say that they're not just the regular metals. You know, they're, they're, it's a metaphor for something deeper. Yes, it's the, it it is the metal, but it's also it has another layer or several other layers of meaning to it. Yeah. The uh, original alchemists were. You know, that's the origin of chemistry. That's the origin of metallurgy. It came out of these mystically-minded people doing metaphysical studies with the properties of metals and other chemicals. And so at the time that they were they were doing this, anything having to do with science and the transformation of, of uh, substances from one to the other and the different properties of them uh, was considered mystical, and they were sort of thought of as... You know, it almost kind of like witches. I mean, there weren't as many persecutions of alchemists, I would say, as there were of witches, but they were sort of thought of by the community as, you know, people dabbling in a dangerous subject. And then, and you really can compare alchemy to ritual magic. I I would say that it's pretty much the same thing. Hermeticism is the study of alchemy. Hermes is, you know, the, the patron saint of alchemy. And Hermes, uh, the, he's, that's the Greek name for this god, uh, the, the uh, Roman name is Mercury. And the substance Mercury is named after him and thought of in the alchemical process as being analogous. These things are connected. You know, the, real, the, the metal Mercury is the god Mercury, and it is also this, this really difficult to explain uh, uh, abstract concept of the principle that changes one thing into another. Yeah, like a changing they, agent. Right, right. It's it's the alchemists thought of themselves as learning the the secrets of God's creation, and you know they believed that God brought something out of nothing, created the universe, and transformed the the primal chaos of the universe into the different things that we see today, and that he used this universal agent, this God force, as uh, yeah, the the power in order to do that, the, the transformative power, and the alchemic the, the alchemists were basically saying that the mercury is that. The mercury extracts the gold from the lead. The lead is thought of as analogous to the 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 primal materia, the the, the primal chaos, and so they use this metaphor of the mercury as this child being swallowed and then reborn. And specifically one of the alchemists, Nicholas Flamel, he wrote a a treatise about alchemy and there's these seven images inside of it that have always fascinated people who study alchemy. They've never really understood what they mean. You know, people are always trying to figure it out. But um, one of the images in there is of 
uh, Saturn cutting off the feet of Mercury. And then it talks, oh, and then there's another image, actually, not in the book necessarily, but on Nicholas Flamel's property of Herod ordering the slaying of the, the innocents, uh, you know, all the, the babies that were killed uh, when Christ was born because mm-hmm. he was trying to eliminate Jesus. Because there was a prophecy that Jesus was going to grow up to be the Messiah and overthrow him. Well, uh, Nicholas Flamel says that that story is really harkening back to the story of Saturn or Kronos and uh, his children. So the story of Kronos is that he had overthrown his father, who had been the uh, the main god in in the world at that time, Uranus, and then and and he did so by castrating him, and, and then he imprisoned him in the center of the earth. And then Kronos became the lord of the earth, and he uh, he ruled over this golden age, where uh, supposedly the the earth was in this paradisal realm. There was no time, ever, there was no bad weather. Nobody had to work for a living, and he was called he was thought of as the lord of misrule. In other words, he wasn't actually, he was the king, but he wasn't telling people what to do. There was no need for that. Right. Because there was no laws or anything like that. Right. Everything was perfect. But the bad thing that uh, Cronus was guilty of was killing all of his children because he thought that there was a prophecy that uh, he was going to be overthrown by one of his sons just as he had overthrown his own father. And so, and it's, you can see the analogy here to the story of Herod. And so, and, and the massacre of the innocents. So what, the way that uh, Kronos killed his children was by swallowing them. He, as soon as his wife, Rhea, would, would give birth to a child, he would have her deliver it to him, and then he would eat it. And uh, in the Greek myth, these divine children were still alive in some sort of semi, you know, dreamlike state inside of his stomach. And uh, Rhea, his wife... At one point, she, was, she just got sick of having all of her children killed. She decided one of them she was going to save. So she saved Zeus and brought him to the island of Crete surreptitiously. Instead of uh, giving Zeus to her husband to swallow, she gave him a stone. And then Zeus um, grew up on Crete. He was raised by a, a goat. And when the, when he grew up, he slaughtered the goat and he turned its, uh, its hide into his shield, the magical Aegis that... You know, anyway, that's one of the things that Zeus is always seen with his his magic Aegis shield. And uh, so Zeus uh, then, you know, grew up and did um, exactly what was prophesied. He became the cupbearer to his father's throne uh, surreptitiously. His dad didn't know who he was. And uh, then he gave him something to drink, and it had some poison in it, and that caused Kronos to vomit out all of his children. And those were the Olympian gods. They they came out of his stomach. So did the stone, and the stone became the Omphalos stone that they worshipped at, at the Oracle of Delphi. But at any rate, uh, so the the Olympian gods came out of the stomach of Kronos, and then Zeus and and the other Olympian gods uh, fought against Kronos and his kingdom and and overtook it. And so now supposedly we're living still in. The realm of Zeus, the real, and, it, and Zeus is analogous to the God of the Bible. He's he's uh, similar to Jehovah. So, let me jump in here, Tracy, and yeah, sort of ahead. rein it in a little bit, and 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 sort of, uh, I'll sort of set you up a little bit more here on this. It, I, I think the point you're trying to make in the book is that 
there's this tradition of child sacrifice that dates back to the ancient times that was then sort of co-opted and interpreted on their own by the alchemists. And the end result really is that this machine, this economic machine that we're all a part of, is is at the very core using child sacrifice in a metaphorical sense to power the whole machine. Yeah, yeah. The alchemists were, were saying that, you know, in alchemy, the lead, the, the Saturn, is eating his children, the metals, and then digesting them because the the athenor of the alchemist was thought of as a as a stomach <laughs> and then i mean they literally said that and then uh you know then what would come out of the athenor is uh the gold or whatever the the, the end result is of, of the transformation and yeah in to carry this analogy forward to the the economy i was saying that yeah we we have an economy that's based on using the sustenance of children, children now and children that are going to be born in the future to feed the present population, especially the present ruling class. And uh, in the book, I go through a whole bunch of different stories, not only uh, ancient myths, but also more more recent folk legends and things like that, where it's, it's the same pattern of the king forces his subjects to kill their children and turn them into gold, and then give the gold to him. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I basically analyze culture in general, the, the myths of, all, of uh, several different cultures throughout history, and the economy, and said, look, this, this, is, this, this child sacrifice is really the main central mystery, the, the main right at the heart of uh, I guess the, the the ritual of statecraft and uh, and in the economy, yeah, I'll explain what I mean by um, by that. It's it's based on the sustenance of the future, the children of the future. Here's how it goes: the government is creating this money out of nothing, and in order to back it, they're selling bonds to the public or to to other central banks, um, other private banks. You know, they're just selling bonds, right? Yeah, and so someone is holding this thing that has alleged value. Well, where does the value come from? It comes from the government's right to tax its citizens. So when the government is selling bonds to create money, they are selling to the bondholder their ownership of you, Mm -hmm. your present and future labor and your wealth and everything that you will possess and produce throughout your life. But because... Governments love to uh, work mainly in deficit. You know, they always borrow more uh, than than they can pay back. They always need to spend more than they have with tax revenue. So what they end up doing really is putting on the hook not only you in, in your present life for uh, for tax expenditures, but also your children and their children. And it's, we're at the point now where, you know, every family owes allegedly uh, $50,000 or more of, of the debt. You know, the figure changes depending on wh- which uh, report you're looking at. But, you know, and there's no, there's no way that uh, Social Security could possibly last for uh, an, another generation. In fact, Social Security is, is another example of this. Social Security, uh, the average 
person who's using it now and who has used it in in the past is getting approximately eight times the value that they put into it. And that's a value that's not dollars. That's adjusted for inflation. Oh, wow. So that means that they're, you know, using the Saturn analogy, you know, every uh, geezer on Social Security and Medicare is getting, uh, he, he's swallowing like eight of his children in order to get that, you know. <laughs> Those yeah. are kids that will have to work their whole lives, presumably, and get taxed at, a, at an enormous rate. And their money will have so little value because of the inflation that's that's uh, been created that, you know, they're just going to be miserable slaves and there's no way that they're going to be able to get any of these uh, Social Security benefits or health care or anything like that. And, you know, that's that's what our current economy is based on. It's very easy to see the analogy in the present economy. It's more arcane, actually, when you look at older economic systems. But... Um, it's there. Trust me. This is this is the, uh, the the basically this is the system of slavery that's been at the heart of all government institutions and uh, economic systems since the beginning. And uh, you know, I guess one of the reasons why I went into such detail about about the golden age and the life of Saturn is because I think it's a really interesting concept. The uh, the golden age was really it's like the Garden of Eden is really seems to be this timeless realm. This is before time began, you know, mythologically. Yeah. And uh, the reason really why Kronos uh, had to swallow his children back then was because um, that that would have initiated the process of, of time. You know, um, if you have birth, you have to have death. And uh, Kronos ruled in paradise so long as there was no actual time. I mean, they even said that uh, in in the Golden Age, the the year was 360 days long and uh the 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 orbit of the earth was a perfect circle the axis was not tilted and therefore there were no seasons everything was the same all year round and as long as you lived in this uh this like third of the planet around the equator you were in this perfect paradise realm and so you know even though um it's it's so hard to, to imagine timelessness, you know, but that's what these mythographers seem to have been trying to communicate. Yeah. And <laughs> so it's, I don't know, it's just this really, I think, really interesting way of looking at things. And, and I've been doing way more research on the Golden Age, even since the uh, um, printing of my newest book, Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge. And I just, I'm more and more convinced that this is really, uh, an underlooked, under, under, understood, uh, not understood uh, concept in in mythology, and uh, also in in hermetics, in uh, in uh, religious rituals today that uh, that people don't understand. And then I and I do think that there is this belief amongst secret societies nowadays that we are going back into a new golden age because that's part of the whole prophecy is that um that there's there's these four epochs of man uh the golden age was the first and then there were these others that all named after metals mind you and the, and they actually said that the human beings of those periods were made out of these different metals so like in the golden age there were actually golden people and uh, now we're in the Iron Age, supposedly. It, it, the, the, don't get confused about um, 
the archaeological terms of, you know, uh, Iron Age and Bronze Age. Yeah, and all yeah. That. It's not the same. But at any rate, um, so they say we're going through these different eons of time and that they repeat in a cycle. So, you know, eventually, supposedly, we're going to have a new Golden Age again. But during the Iron Age, which is what we're in right now, society is breaking down. Everything's collapsing. Mankind is uh, corrupt and, you know, every every man for himself, everyone screwing each other over. And, you know, it's hard to say that that's not happening. <laughs> but the prediction is that eventually that gives way, that the, the child, you know, of, of the present aeon dies and is reborn. Then we're in some new golden age in which, you know, it's said that it's, it's, a, it's a realm of peaceful anarchy. Now, and it's, it's, it's strange to think of, uh, of Saturn, you know, this person eating or God eating his own children as being a good guy, but that's sort of the image is that, well, he was the king of this wonderful uh, time in, in history, or, or, or time of no time, I guess. And uh, so the, the hat that he wore, the red Phrygian cap, as it's called, it's, very, it's the same as Santa Claus's hat without the little ball at the end. And uh, Santa Claus is absolutely based on Saturn. But Saturn, yeah, was thought of as this uh, benevolent king, and the hat is associated with libertarianism. The, the Liberty Cap, which I named my uh, one of my websites after, libertycappress.com. Yeah. It's associated with revolution and uh, equality and freedom. And so it's interesting to think that we may be coming into an, a new golden age and that it's, something, it's not something that the elites necessarily are controlling, although they may be trying to, but they couldn't. You know, if, if if it's if it's a force of history that's you know more powerful than they are, um, they may just be trying to keep it from happening. What they try to do. So it's interesting to try to think of what may be coming next. You know, it's always interesting to think about what may be coming next. Uh, I think that's what drives a lot of us here in this odd little field that we're in. We take the time to stop and, and try and contemplate that. Uh, speaking of time, I thought it was interesting. You really make some interesting points in the in the book about time and how it's sort of uh, become commodified in you know the last two or three generations, if you will, uh, you know, on purpose. And it, I found that really interesting because a lot of people don't consider that. But you know, you sort of make the point in the book that you know when you're working at a job or something like that, you're really selling your time to your employer. And it, it's it's that time equals money, as the expression goes, in, in a literal sense. So I guess I guess talk about that sort of idea there, that the commodification of time. Sure, sure, yeah, um, I, yeah. I pointed out that without a uh, a gold standard, you have this implicit connection between time and money, where everyone's money, the value of their money, is measured by labor, by how many uh, minimum wage man hours you can get out of that amount of money. But because, of course, the value of the dollar fluctuates, and it always, well, fluctuate is the wrong term. I mean, over over the period of uh, a month or more, it's always going to be going down. Uh, and that's, what, that's what's been going on for decades now. So when that happens, when they inflate the currency by printing more dollars than there are presently goods and services to absorb it or back it up, then that... Uh, that waters down the value of those man hours. So 
it, it, what I pointed out is that that does something to the psyche of the person doing the work, that as time goes on, it seems like like time is going faster, you know, that you you have to work more and more in order to maintain a certain level of uh, of standard of living. So, you know, I'm sure uh, there's a certain point, I know I reached it, <laughs> where you can't... Uh, you can't possibly do any more things in the day, and yet the money that you're getting isn't worth what you need to buy in order to live. You right. know? And, and so, yeah, I just talked about how that's sort of a mystical, alchemical concept. And here you have uh, Saturn or Kronos being the, fa- the father time figure. And, and in, the, in the alchemical metaphor, they talk about him cutting off the feet of Mercury. This is a state, uh, something that happens in the alchemical process. Mercury is, uh, the, the, the metal is liquid at room temperature. But, you know, when you do certain things to it or uh, change the temperature of it, then it will solidify. And so I think that's what they were talking about was uh, combining uh, mercury and lead and whatever metals they happen to be using in whatever uh uh, transformation you happen to be doing at the time, but uh, but the effect is that it solidifies the mercury. It it cuts its feet off. It it uh, prevents mercury from flying. With you know, mercury has wings on his hat, and he can normally fly. But uh, if you if you fix his feet to the ground or cut them off, or in some of the the pictures, he's Saturn is tying his feet up. Uh, then you're preventing him from uh, being free, basically. And so, yeah, I was saying that that's sort of an image of of what's happened to modern man, the slavery that we now have, you know, where we're indebted to the point where we have to we have to sell all of the time that we have and then more. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that relationship of Saturn to Mercury, where Saturn's cutting off the feet of Mercury, is really an emblem of modern man uh living in a world where time equals money but there isn't enough time to pay for everything ain't that so. the truth <laughs> um and i i think if we got time left i'd like we to got plenty of time say, we got plenty of time i'd like to say some things about christmas um wow okay <laughs> this comes out of nowhere all right what's what what no 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 it's part of the well i talked about it in the book how um christmas is this very important time in the economy that you know everyone the economy operates in the red really you know for most of the year and then on Black Friday, the day after uh thanksgiving that's when the whole christmas uh shopping season kicks off and that's when retailers expect to finally make their money back and make a profit yeah and so much of our economy domestically is really dependent on this consumer purchasing and so much of it happens during this period that when, you know, if people did not participate in this festival, it wouldn't work at all. Right. And there's so many things going on there. You know, you're working. Well, okay. Huh? No, it sounds like you're ready to unload here, so go for it. No, there's so, uh, there's so many different directions I could go in, but um, I think we have to start with uh, the connection between Santa Claus and Kronos. I mean, Kronos is is the basis of Santa Claus. Um, in Rome, they called this festival Saturnalia, and they celebrated it on the last days of the year. Remember I said that uh, during Saturn's kingdom in the Golden Age, there were 360 days. Right. 
and it's corresponding with the 360 degrees of the circle, and everything was perfect and wonderful. And then something happened, some sort of cataclysm happened uh, that marked the, the transition from that age to the next. You can think of that as being analogous to Zeus overthrowing Kronos. That caused the the, the um, axis to be tilted and the orbit to be changed. So it's 365 days and some change now instead of 360. Right. And uh, so in the ancient world, not only in in uh, Rome, but in Egypt and um, several other, I'm pretty sure Babylon, uh, they had this concept that the last five days of the year were non-days. They didn't actually exist because they remembered this old, the older time, you know, and they, and they, they always thought of that as the sacred time period, you know, that this is a, a fallen version of the old world, the old reality. And so during the last five days of the year, they would, it would just be a festival. They would celebrate. And um, in, in Roman Saturnalia, this is the way they did it, was they would let all of the slaves free for a few days and they would all put on that red liberty cap to to signify that they were free and everyone was allowed to drink and use prostitutes and gamble and all of these things that were considered uncouth and and uh, something you shouldn't do in public during the rest of the year at any rate so yeah saturnalia anciently historically is this time period of celebration of of uh, the golden age you try to recreate the the golden age and one of the things that would happen is they would have this temporary king elected here's how they elect them uh you they still do this in mardi at mardi gras by the way they have these things called king cakes and uh you bake a cake with a little token inside representing a baby and you cut up the cake and whoever gets the slice with the baby hidden inside of it is the king for the Saturnalia Festival. And he gets treated like the king throughout the entire time. And um, he's given gifts, and then he also distributes gifts to children, just like uh, Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the festival, he is sacrificed, or in some cases, he lives, he's the, he's the king from last year's Saturnalia, and then he finally gets sacrificed, and then they, they elect a new one. So that's where we get this, <laughs> so many of our rituals, uh, the, um, from the Saturnalia festival. Why do you why do you set out uh cookies for Santa Claus? It's a um a votive offering basically to Kronos to keep him from eating your children. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that's the origin of it. Yeah. And uh and so anyway, um Christmas it's it's so weird to think of it that it's this uh important period at the end of the year that our economy depends on people making ridiculous purchases, uh, supposedly giving gifts to their children. Supposedly it's all about the children. But at the heart of it is this symbolism from the ancient world of child sacrifice, and not only that, but eating the children. So, it, you know, it's, it's very interesting to think about, I think. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So we've established that you hate Christmas. No, no. I'm I just, just I, I was I just actually, joking, I love Tracy. Christmas. It's really weird. It's so weird. <laughs> I love it. All right. Okay. So you love Christmas, even though it's based on child sacrifice. You can't win on this. No, I'm just teasing you, Tracy. <laughs> what I find interesting is sort of what we've been talking about here and is, you know, talked about at length in the book, Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge, is that, you know, we seem like this sophisticated society and, you know, we don't sacrifice children anymore or, you know, in, in most 
civilized parts of the world. But really, we're still sort of enacting a lot of these ritual aspects that have been going on since ancient times. It's very Mm -hmm. strange. You wonder, I guess, you know, who clearly you've, you know, unlocked this. If it's all, uh, you know, accurate, let's say. You know, as you said, you do your own interpretations, obviously. But you wonder, you know, if these families or whatever, if, if they're sort of, if they understand that all of this is, is, is ritual. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I, th- I think that, yeah, the more elite families absolutely do. Um, and then as far as everyone else goes, you know, this is something, like I said, it's bigger than they are. They can't control right. it. These are These are primal forces of nature. And uh, these are hidden patterns of reality that they play themselves out in history, but you don't really see the pattern until later, you know? Yeah. I'm trying to describe the pattern as I see it going on right now. That's nothing compared to what it'll be like 10 years from now when we look back at this period in time and see, you know, what was really going on. We can see so many more patterns, so many more metaphors to be made, but... Um, child sacrifice, you know, that's that's the prime uh, religious ritual of all. You know, you think about it, uh, that's what Jesus was all about. It was God demanding the sacrifice of his own son in in the steed of, uh, of us, of his other children, the humans. Um, and that, not only child substitute, sacrifice, but the concept of the substitution of that, that it's possible to sort of um, placate God by offering a substitute. That's so common, you know. Um, like uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac to God, but then God accepted a goat sacrifice instead, or a ram. And then at the Passover, that's what is really going on there. You're you're sacrificing the the ram instead of the firstborn sons of Israel. And uh, you know, it's just that's. If you if you just go back to the ancient world, that's what it's all about, is right. child sacrifice. And if you can't actually sacrifice your son, you do it to someone else's son, or, uh, or you know, in later times, then they started using animals, and now we use little cookies, you know. <laughs> you, uh, you consume the flesh and blood of God, but it's only a metaphorical God hidden in a cookie. Yeah, but as you also point out in the book, you... What we're also doing, I don't have any kids, thank God, but what we're also, what other people are also doing is, is they're sacrificing their children to the machine, to the, yes. to the, to the whole system now. You know, you teach your kid to go to school and to work and the value of the dollar and all that horse shit. You know, and, and then really, it's a big con. It's a big system that's been set up. Um, well, the, you know, the metaphor that, that, of the, of the matrix is really, it really applies here, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. If you just remember that movie, I mean, it's a cheesy movie, but it's got some really interesting concepts in it. And one of them is that these, you're, you're, if you're one of the victims, if you're one of the slaves, you're one of the batteries for the machine of the future, you're literally like floating in a vat of goo, being digested, but you're, you're not aware of it because you're dreaming this alternate reality. And, but meanwhile, your body and your, the sustenance of your body is being utilized by this, this machine slave owner that you're not even aware of. And interestingly, in that movie, they had, they said that uh, the the slaves, the, the people that were floating around in this goo, what did they eat? What was their sustenance? It was the liquefied remains of the other slaves. So it was it, you know, cannibalistic as well. 
Well, I also was thinking about this as I read the book, too. Uh, this is sort of a chicken or an egg thing, maybe. And I don't know, you, you didn't you didn't really get into this in the book, so I don't know if, you, if this has crossed your mind yet or not. But, uh, you know, we talk about the children and babies being used, you know, in the alchemical practices and whatnot and mm-hmm. child sacrifice. And you wonder how this might lead somewhere towards uh, stem cell research. And I wonder, oh, yeah. if, I wonder if, if perhaps uh, either it was that quest to sacrifice babies that led to that knowledge, or if it was lo- lost knowledge originally that led to the misconception that power could be derived from babies. Um, I don't, hmm, I don't know. Um, I mean, I've definitely thought of. <laughs> I stumped you this time. Nice. <laughs> no, no, you haven't, you haven't stopped me, not necessarily. I mean, uh, I didn't get into this much yet in this interview, but I, I did talk about how not only do I think that there's a metaphor there in, in alchemy, many layers of metaphor that can be applied to many different things, but I think that, you know, the, the, some of the alchemists in some of the time were actually using the remains of children. And I talked about how you know, I thought definitely that Nicholas Flamel might have been doing that, he and his wife, because he, he and his wife did their alchemy together. It, and uh, he always sort of alluded, he always said that, well, my wife's participation is really important. I couldn't have done it without her. And uh, one of the interesting things about them is that uh, when they got, got their first, I guess, load of uh of riches made from gold, you know, from surreptitiously creating gold through the alchemical process, they they became wealthy, and then they needed to, you know, launder that. I guess they needed to put it into things in order, you know, to, for everyone to uh, not wonder, hey, what's that pile of gold sitting yeah. over there? So at any rate, they uh, and it's also it's also sort of a, a spiritual concept that you ha- it's important to donate your wealth to good causes because that brings more wealth. That's another alchemical monetary concept that I've written about in other books. But at any rate, so uh, one of the things he wanted to do was, you know, he wanted to do some sort of good work. And so he created this um, uh, cemetery by his house where um, babies that had died during birth or or shortly thereafter um, could be buried and also, you know, uh, children that had miscarried, so that he called it the cemetery of the innocents, and he put that image of uh, of Herod and the massacre of the innocents right on the outside of it, and it was right by his house. Um, so I thought, you know, this is probably not a coincidence, and if you think about it, uh, isn't it quite likely that Flamel was using the remains of some of those children in some of his operations, and isn't it quite possible that his wife? could have been producing some of this material as well. You know, she, she could have um, had some pregnancies that were deliberately uh, terminated early so that the, the material could be used. Right. And, uh, you know, at, this, at, at that time, that would have been one of the most horrible things you could do. I mean, having an abortion and especially deliberately doing it for for such a purpose would have been so diabolical, you know. Well, it's still and pretty so, diabolical, you know. It's not certainly not something that's encouraged nowadays either. 
Absolutely. No, I agree with you. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not in favor of abortion at all, because, and, you know, I won't get into that. But it's, no, 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 uh, I just mean, you know, abortion for the sake of having the ingredients for some kind of weird magical ritual. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it would be weird today and, and, uh, and absolutely the sort of thing that you would get stoned over back <laughs> then. So, um, but, but in his writing, he get, he acts like, he, he sort of hints at it, but then he says, but I wouldn't use the real blood of children in the operations because that would be diabolical. But he, but then he later talks about being, basically having a guilty conscience. So I really, I really got the idea that he was using the remains of children and that he was doing this, these good works as a way of sort of making up for that. So, uh, so then you think about modern times and yeah, the use of uh, stem cells and things like that. Um, yeah, of course, the only reason why that hasn't progressed further is because it's considered bad, you know, there's a taboo. Right. And, um, oh, if you think about it, if it wasn't for our, our moral standards that we presently have, most people have, you know, some sort of a Judeo-Christian moral standard, um, that would be happening so much more. Uh, in fact, I've theorized in the past about the use of human body parts as a economic basis. And my, my father actually, uh, my father's name is Rich and Famous. What's that? And uh, my father's name is Rich and Famous. That's his name. And uh, What does that mean? That's actually, he, he changed his name. It's sort of a stage name, and that's what his, his legal name is now. His name is Rich, Rich and Famous. Does he have a last yeah, name? Rich, it's just... Rich is the first name, Famous is the last name. N is the middle initial. What does he do? Um, well, I was getting to that. Okay, yeah, <laughs> you've intrigued me here. This is I've never heard of this before. Go ahead. One of the things he he has is sort of this um, website and Facebook page he's created. And it's called Bib T because your body belongs to you, and it's he, he keeps track of stories about organ donations and transplants and specifically the market for organs because um, it's illegal to sell your organs. Yeah. As, you know, you're not allowed to make a uh, individual decision to sell your organs either before or after you die. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, but what is happening is that people are, people donate their organs voluntarily. And uh, then what happens is the hospital takes that those organs and there's these intermediary organizations that profit or they they're, they're so they're supposedly non-profit but you know people are working for these organizations making their living at it you know so and of course the the person receiving the organ is paying <laughs> they're they're definitely paying tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to get this organ and so someone's making all this money, and it's going through the, the nonprofit organizations and the hospitals, and there's all these middlemen middlemen right. profiting from it. You, the the person whose guts are being used, are not allowed to profit from it, and your family can't profit from it. Well, so my father's opinion is that that's wrong, and you should be allowed to. And uh, I thought that was very interesting because if you think about it, this could be um, the source of derivatives now and in the future. You can have uh, investments based on this, you know, you because my dad's idea is that you should be allowed to use your body as a resource. You should be able to find a company that wants to buy it and make a contract with them that, you know, they can have your organs after you die 
And of course, you know, they'll probably assess your health and give you a, a rating of the value of your organs based Interesting. on yeah. lifestyle and everything. At any rate, so yeah, I'm saying, I was saying that not only could this be, it'd be great for the people, for individuals, if this law was changed so that we all would have, uh, on average about $150,000 worth of organs <laughs> in our body that we could, we could borrow against. But, you know, if I've thought of it, Probably someone else has too. So let's connect this to Obamacare. <laughs> uh oh. All right. No, seriously. The, uh, the um, Obamacare is at heart really. It's all about um, taking the assumption that your body belongs to you. It's the last frontier. It's the one thing that the government hasn't claimed complete ownership of yet. Yeah. And they're going to take that as well. And if you think about it. Um, what else does the United States government have to offer its bondholders anymore? Because they've already, as I think I explained maybe in our last conversation, they already hypothecated all of the land and other property to the, the bondholders, whoever the, uh, the obligés are of, right. of our, our, inter, our national debt. Um, in 1933, they actually, Congress, <laughs> Did that, and <laughs> yeah. so and, and so it literally ever since then the the land beneath your feet and everything that anyone thinks they own in the United States is actually owned by bankers. Uh, the government said so, but the only thing that, and also of course the fruit of your labor, anything that you might do uh, in your life to create wealth, it also all, already belongs to these bankers. The one thing that they don't own yet is your physical body, and. If you think about it, we now are in a position where if we're going to restructure our debt, we will have to offer another uh, collateral of some sort. And, and and if we're going to reinflate the economy, we need to have another bubble, another commodity oh, no. that you can base derivatives on. So I absolutely thought, you know, that this was the direction they were going in. Now, obviously, it looks like uh, Obamacare is dead in the water for now, but I still think that this is the final frontier of uh, of debt slavery. Wow. Well, I hope it doesn't happen for a while, Tracy, because I smoke, I drink too much. My body's worthless. <laughs> My body's yeah, absolutely yeah. worthless. I mean, I'm in better shape. <laughs> I'm in better shape if we just stick with this dying dollar. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, no doubt. Very interesting. <laughs> that is very interesting. Wow. So you see this as something that may happen. I just would like to think that at some point the human race will figure out that this 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 like economic system, you know, that we can stop this before they institute the new bubble. That that we wake up to this whole thing. Do you know what I mean? I don't understand why. You know, we just I don't. I just don't understand why we can't seem to get ourselves out of this mess. Do you know what I mean? I think people are just powerless and they just don't want to do anything about it and they've been conditioned. You know, dumbed down and pushed out of the whole, you know, decision-making process about the world. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, that's that's true. But you don't have to have everyone involved in a revolution. You know, it's really just a, a fraction of the people that right. that do that. Uh, when you look through history, and and of course, that's that's what I think is going on. I think we are going from one era to another. People are waking up. There's going to be. A revolution, one generation will supplant the previous one, and you can think of it as analogous to Zeus overthrowing Kronos or Kronos overthrowing Uranus. It's the way that one age passes to the next, and the oppressed youth 
the slaves overtake their masters. But um, what I talked about in Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge, I said that any system, just historically, it always has to have someone play the role of the sacrifice and the victim. So if a, a new age is going to come and you know, some other concept is going to rule, even if it's not a literal uh elite or or a new ruler you know if it's if it's the golden age then it should be some sort of system of anarchy or if we have a ruler then it should be an unruler you know he should be the lord of misrule we should um he should be a ruler in name only but um you know even the golden age had its 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 victim its slave that they used as the source of their sustenance and as the sort of a scapegoat upon which the the sins of the ruling elite would sort of put the blame for everything. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's ever going to change. I'm sure that there will be a new uh, scapegoat in the future. Well, yeah. Well, isn't that – that's kind of the concern I had, too, reading the book. How do we know that – we've kind of established here that the, the system that's in place has been engineered by people. How do we know that they're just not trying to engineer their own golden age for themselves and where the – where the put upon slaves to produce their golden age? Well, we don't know that at all. I mean, I isn't know. that what actually is happening? Possibly. Well, <laughs> I think that that's the that's what they think. But you know, Kronos always thought that he was going to rule, and he and he didn't think he thought he thought of everything. He didn't realize that Rhea had tricked him. You know, I think that that's the way. It is here, too. You know, these people think they have everything under control, but always, historically, something slips out of their notice, and that's the thing that leads to their downfall and the creation of the next age. But, you know, um, Zeus was the son of Kronos, and that's likely to be the case here as well. If there's going to be a new form of leadership, then the leaders of that new um, new government or whatever it is will come from the same bloodlines, most likely. That doesn't sound good, though. The, the, well, I don't think there's a, you know, <laughs> like I said, there's something, we're talking about something that's bigger than us. I think yeah. that, that, you know, a lot of what people say is, uh, you know, conspiracy of elite families throughout generations. Sometimes it's just fate and destiny that, you know, I think that these, these people literally have, you know, they have curses and blessings from previous generations stored in their DNA, you know, that's that's how it works. I don't think that they can stop being what they are. Right, right. So it's not so much like, because people always talk about how, you know, if there's this grand conspiracy, why would someone put all their life's work into something that they'll never even see the fruition of? You know, like, you know, people who are working towards a one-world government. You know, if they were working on it in the 40s or something like that, they wouldn't even see it come to fruition. But what you're saying is sort of like that it's just sort of destiny. It's just sort of this pattern that's emerging. Well, see, that's the concept of the Lord of the Earth in the center of the Earth that I alluded to a little bit in Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge. If you go to my website, TracyRToyman.com, you'll find a new article that gets into this much much deeper. It's called uh, Regnum in Potentia. Saturn's kingdom transformed into the golden age. And it's all about this concept of the Lord of the Earth. Um, there were a lot of, like, Eastern cults that were into this idea, too, and the Nazis were into it. This is their idea of the black sun in the center of the Earth. The swastika was actually a symbol of this black sun concept. 
They were saying that there's this God buried in the center of the earth who's really the Lord of the earth, even though you can't see him, and he's controlling everything in some mystical manner. He's actually asleep, and his dreams are are controlling our reality. We're living within his dream, and, and we're being sort of subtly controlled by him through unseen forces. And the the control mechanism he's really using is the, peop- the people in positions of power on earth, that he's manipulating them. But the reason why he's able to tap into their consciousness and manipulate them so easily is because they're his children. And this Lord of the Earth is is Saturn. It's what happened to Saturn or Kronos after he was overthrown. He was imprisoned in this subterranean chamber. And uh, the story goes that in this subterranean chamber, there's this uh, hidden sun, the 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 central sun or the black sun, an artificial sun. And in some instances, it seems like they're saying Saturn is the black sun. It's the same thing. So uh, this, the the black sun that the Nazis believed in uh, was this hidden power that um, animated things on the surface. They sort of thought of it as the source of the electromagnetic field. And uh, that, yeah, everything on Earth is sort of being uh, subtly manipulated by the power of the black sun and what they called the green ray, the, the, the energy that comes from the black sun. Yeah. You were saying, okay, well, um, why are these people doing things in some sort of grand scheme that they're only right, right. in their whole, in their lives? And well, it's because that, you know, they're really tapping into something larger than themselves, being controlled by something larger than themselves. And then, of course, some of them are, are actually members of secret societies that do occult rituals that, where they contact hidden entities. And the, the Nazis, for instance, were literally, or, or some of this, I guess, to specify some of the secret societies that uh, that sort of spawned the Nazi yeah. movement. They were uh, literally channeling messages from beings that they believed to be living in the center of the earth, and uh, they gave them directions on how to build flying saucers and stuff. But, you know, so if Nazis were doing things like that, or, or the progenitors of the Nazis were doing things like that, isn't it possible that there's some Masonic lodges that are doing things like that? And the attendants at those Masonic lodges are people in positions of power, you know? I think that that's quite possible. Yeah. The economy's been a little rough, man. Oh, man, just brutal. You know, it's times like these that E-Trade can really help you replan your investments, yep. though. You know, it gives you the tools and research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Take control. Rise up. Dude, he's broken. No, 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 no. What? Stop. What? I can't flex the golden pipes? It's not the venue. It's inspiration. Any place. Fine. Okay, where was I? Learn to fly again. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. <laughs> no, no, I'm just poking at your funny bone. I am quite alarmed. I don't think you realize the danger. Like the people who think it's okay to bring shampoo on an airplane. Well, you know, it sort of goes back to the idea, too, that just because we don't believe in a lot of this stuff, not me and you, but I mean like the mainstream people, you know, mm-hmm. or they're sort of like, there's no secret societies. They're not doing rituals and stuff like that, or that's not real. Like, just because the mainstream doesn't believe in it doesn't mean if they don't believe in it, then it doesn't have that power to them. Oh, no, it's, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, we're, the the idea is that, you know, we are trapped in uh, the dream world of Saturn, and so the fact that we're unaware of it, that's almost the definition of a dream, you know, except for a lucid dream. I guess that's that's the concept of waking up, right? You Waking up from the Matrix, you sort of wake up and you realize that you're in this dream, but... 
you know, you can't, can you really get out of the dream? I don't know. Or would you want to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you, but when you have a lucid dream, that's when you sort of realize like, oh, I'm really in control of this. Um, I thought I was just, you know, a victim of it all, but really, uh, I can, I can fly if I want to. I can, I don't have to run away from the monster. I can beat it, you know? And I think that, you know, that's, I guess that's the best we can hope for. I think we are in a dream. We're in a, we're in an illusion. You know, I, I really, I really believe that, you know, that, uh, the, the universe is really always primal chaos. And the only thing that organizes the chaos into something meaningful is your, your body, your senses, your cognitive ability to put it all together. So, I, th- I think that in that sense, we're always in a dream and an illusion, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's the nature of reality. That's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Uh, and that beyond just the body, too, it's the sort of like that coll- collective agreement on things, how people all agree that the dollar's worth something, or people all agree that this is the way things should be, or, you know, sort of like a self self-sustaining normalcy, if you will. Right, right. And when that agreement starts to break down, that's when everything becomes unstable and sort of surreal and, you know, <laughs> and I think that's what's going on. Like we don't, we can't agree on the value of the dollar anymore or, or anything else. So, you know, we're in this period of instability right now where nothing is certain and things are turning to chaos and it will be up to that, you know, alchemical agent of the future to to bring it all back together again and, and form something new out of it. It makes you wonder, too, because I don't know if we really got into this. I mean, I, I sort of introduced this, but then I feel like we didn't really get into it, and this sort of adds to what I'm going to say next. So, <laughs> so yeah, go ahead. Um, how I was saying that I wonder if the alchemical idea of power being derived from babies comes from lost original knowledge of the power of stem cells and I'm sort of wondering in turn, you know, you talk about this Saturn age. I'm 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 not a huge believer sort of in the ancient astronauts idea, but I am sort of a believer in in this idea that the ancient cultures were more advanced than we give them credit for. And it just makes you wonder if there's sort of like a scientific background to a lot of this alchemical stuff. You know, if if, if there was science involved first, then it got lost and turned into alchemy because it was based on myths and legends and rumors and stuff and now it's sort of coming back into fruition via science what do you think of that yeah um yeah yeah i think that i i don't know exactly what to make of it but i don't dismiss it, it there's something literally real about this concept that the people of these various ages of the gold age, the silver age, the bronze age, the, and then there's the stone age in, in the Greek myths where um, they said that uh, after the flood, the hero of the flood myth um, was told to take stones from the ground and toss them behind him. And uh, the stones, when they hit the ground, would magically turn into people. And that's the race that we presently are, according to that version of the myth. Um that uh, I really believe that there's something to that. There's some reason why uh, the Greeks remembered the, the root races of these earlier ages as being somehow literally metallic, you know. And I'm thinking that that's they're getting that from the perspective of these gods, whatever they were. And you said, you know, 
you mentioned ancient astronauts. They could have been that. Uh, who knows? It's like we don't, we can't possibly see, we can't get the perspective we need to understand what the gods really were, and right. where they came from, and all of that. But, but from their perspective, as the um, sort of genetic engineers of our race and all of these other races, they may have literally thought of us as, oh, those are the gold people because we put some sort of metallic element in them, and those are the silver people because we, we use silver for that one. And if you think about it, you know, some some of the versions of the myths say that we're the Iron Age. Well, what is it that, what is the active element in your blood, you know, but iron? And uh, what makes it circulate in a way, uh, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, we really are the Iron Age. We really are right. the Iron People, you know? <laughs> and could they have known that, really, back in the day, that, that the blood was primarily iron? I don't think so. Exactly. So it makes you wonder if there was, like, some advanced knowledge of, of, of the sciences that we, don't, that we don't give them credit for knowing. Even if it didn't have anything to do with ancient aliens. I don't know what else it could be. Or, or You know, there's sort of another idea, too, that the human race you know, reached levels where we're at now and then wiped itself out and started all over again sort of idea. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, that could be something that could have happened. We don't know. But I do think or, that these sort of myths and legends and, and in turn, you know, arcane sort of alchemical and occult stuff have roots in something that was tangible and real at some point. Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. It's just that it's it's so hard for us to understand the perspective of the people that I guess were originally told these stories. Right. And it seems like every seems like there's this memory of this cataclysm, and what was happening before the cataclysm is so vague. You know, it's all mixed up, and uh, you know, I, I've tried to deconstruct the chronology of the pre-Diluvian history, and it's impossible. I find that all the pre-Diluvian stories are so messed up that you can you can go to from one culture and it'll it'll tell you a chronology and that all makes sense and then you go to another culture and you'll find similar myths and uh names of people and things like that but it's not in the same order and uh it, it just seems like that you know so i guess we have this myth of there being no time in the golden age partially because we can't remember it well enough to uh to reconstruct it anymore and you know, I, I mean, I'm really open to the idea. Uh, I don't know. I'm open to all ideas. I guess is what I'm saying. It's yeah. like to say to to ask, oh, what planet did the ancient astronaut gods come from? Is to assume that they had to have a planet to say, right, right. Uh, because to say, oh, what, go, how did time start? Well, can you? How can you start time? You know. Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, of time. I I I use the ancient astronaut idea just as a sort of catch-all, but, I mean, this, with the way science is advancing in this sort of, like, interdimensional idea, too, that, you know, you don't know, this could have been people who could cross dimensions or something like that. That's absolutely what I think, and it's a large part of the article that I just wrote. I'm talking about the concept of Saturn's kingdom as a timeless place that can be created at any time and place. And uh, I also got into the concept of that that's what Noah's Ark was, too. And in the Sumerian version of that story, uh, the, the flood hero Utnapishtim was told through gods that were speaking to him from the, through the walls of his house that 
he needed there was going to be a flood and he needed to construct an ark to save himself and so they took he made an ark out of his own home and it was a perfect cube and uh basically he just you know boarded up his house in a way and uh well he can there was some construction but at any rate just think of it as you know what if you created an ark from your own bedroom how would you do that well it's very similar i think to how magicians will create uh, ceremonial magicians will create sacred space in their temple and then they'll have a um a magic circle that they create where they can either stand inside of the magic circle and then they can evoke demons in the room around them and they'll be safe as long as they stay inside of the magic circle right uh, they'll be safe from the demons or vice versa you might you might uh evoke a demon into the circle and then the demon can't leave the circle and you can do what you need to with him without fear that he's going to do something to you. So at any rate, it's it's this idea that you can somehow through magical processes create a different dimension, really create this timeless realm of Saturn within your own home. And I think that you know that's really the concept that we're dealing with here with uh, with Noah's Ark and uh, in this mountain that that the Ark always uh, washes up on in these stories. Um, you know, they, and they said the gods of, uh, Olympus went to the top of the mountain during the flood. What this really means is going up into a higher dimension to the point where, you know, everything around you dissolves into chaos, but you're safe inside the hermetically sealed Athenor uh-huh. of the, of the temple that you've created, the, the ark that you've created. And then when you come out, you're in a whole new world. So, and then I think that, um, if that if something like that literally happened, um, when you come out of the ark and you're in this new world, it may not all be solidified yet. It's like a new creation, and just as in the beginning of the world when it was created, uh, in the Bible it talks about how there were these primeval waters, and then there's this process, these days of creation that it goes through, where everything sort of solidifies. And, you know, um, I think that that would have happened again to Noah when he comes out of the ark. And so you have this period in which the, the floodwaters are subsiding and he has to wait, you know, he, he has this bird that he uses to, as a trial, you know, to find out if there's yeah. any land yet to, to walk out on. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about this as an alchemical process and you're, and yourself being Noah, you're like the baby inside the Athenor, you know, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's an, it's an interesting concept. I think. I think there's some scientific under, underpinnings to this, which I would like to see you explore uh, as you go forward. Yeah, well, you know, my <laughs> husband is more of the, uh, more into, like, evolutionary biology and stuff. He's more of an expert on that stuff, and uh, maybe uh, maybe he can figure it out. I mean, I you don't... You guys can team I, up. I, I, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't pretend to be a scientist at all, so I'm, I'm trying to analyze these myths and what they may have been trying to express, but I have absolutely no claim to know you know, whether it's the Pleiadians or um, what year it happened or anything like that. And I, and as far as, you know, yeah, what's the biology of of the different root races, I don't know. Yeah, who knows, that kind of thing. That's, that's <laughs> spec. Anyone who tells you they know that, run away, because they're, <laughs> they're trying to sell you something. Speaking of which, I noticed in the book you're not a fan of monatomic gold. You don't believe in that whole thing? Oh, well, I, you know, I actually got a lot of uh, crap from people <laughs> when I did the Red Ice interview. Um, I, I got lots of praise from the audience, but I did get several emails from 
members of the monatomic gold cult who were really passionate about that and thought that I had defamed them. And so I told them, you know, well, I'll, I'll take a second look at it, but which I haven't really done. So, you know, give me time before I revise my statement on that. But um, my experience with that, I've known some people who knew some people who had some bad experiences with that, having to do with the stuff that they were buying they took it for years and then had liver problems oh, God. and then found out that it was it was table salt. They had someone analyze what they'd been swallowing all this time, and they were just taking massive amounts of salt, and uh, it was actually causing them health problems. So, Buyer I beware. <laughs> I, don't, I, I need to take a second look at it, and maybe I didn't mean to, like, to say that anyone in particular was ripping el- anyone else off. I'm not making any uh, claims like that. But, you know, um, it's def- it definitely seems, I don't know, kind of, it, it needs to be proven to me that, you know, this is, that someone has discovered a, uh, a cure-all, you know, and it, it has to do with transmuting gold into another dimension. I mean, that's what I remember reading, is the, you know, the, the process. Yeah, it was something like that. I, I, I've only sort of ba- vaguely looked at it myself, so I can't. All I know is that it was sort of like somehow they boil gold and turn it into powder or something like that, and that turns it into monatomic gold, and then you eat it. I mean, it's, it sounds like they're definitely trying to recreate, you know, the, the alchemical process, and one of the ways that you could use alchemy, according to the old text, was, yeah, you could create a uh, an alchemical substance that could be swallowed, and then supposedly it would, you know, cure everything in your body and make you live forever. And so, you know, it definitely sounds like they're trying to do that. Um, how well it's worked, I don't know. I never tried it myself, and I would really have to know more about it before I would swallow that stuff. But, you know, the, the people that wrote to me, I don't know, maybe, you know, I didn't mean to offend anyone, but the uh, the passion with which they responded and, all, and sort of the, the fierceness with which they uh criticized me and also the fact that I got a cluster of these emails all together. Yeah. What it reminded me of is the time that I, I said something defamatory about uh, Scientology Uh-oh. when I was uh, when I was writing for the school paper when I was 16. And it, I got the same sort of response, except it was it was a bit more intense. And they actually tracked me down. <laughs> oh, no. Tried to, oh, yeah. They had to tr- they tried to do a personal intervention to convince me that. Uh, Scientology was great. So, I don't know. I'm just, I guess uh, I'm probably going to get even more letters now, but the, the people that wrote to me reminded me of Scientologists. Well, that at least at least they didn't I was afraid you were going to say they tried to beat you up. So, instead, oh, no. <laughs> instead of trying to beat you up, they just tried to indoctrinate you, right? Yeah, like, oh, well, what how could you question the uh, you know, teaching of Zenu? Exactly. <laughs> great. Now I'm going to get letters. <laughs> Probably. Well, based on what, what, aren't you like banned in Pakistan too, or something like that? Uh, you know, I don't. I no any news on that me. fatwa? Are you are you free of that yet, or 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 are you, no no plans to to head on over to Pakistan to find out? I assume. Well, look, um, <laughs> I'm trying to look. I still stand by my my position on that issue of uh, that people should be free to make Muhammad cartoons or any other type of cartoon they want to. And uh, that it's not the job of any non-Muslim to observe uh, Muslim taboos, uh, which is why uh, the Supreme Court of Pakistan had, had banned me and my husband and my website. 
uh, and tried to extradite us wow. <laughs> to face the death penalty. But at, at the, I guess what I'm getting at is uh, I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's fine. No, I, I don't really care. What I'm saying is that uh, I don't want any fallows because I'm planning on going to um, Turkey and Alexandria at the end of the uh, in October because oh, we're going to have a uh, there's some sort of tour we're going to do that I'll announce the details of later. And uh, I'm hoping that no one comes and chops my head off. Oh, Jesus, Tracy. Will you be careful? I wouldn't even go anywhere near there. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Couldn't they I grab know, you in Turkey and bring you to Pakistan? No. Turkey's supposed to be civilized. Oh, famous last words of Tracy Twyman, folks. <laughs> Oh my God! All right, well, keep us keep us informed on that. Uh, I'll keep an eye out for uh, <laughs> for the news when you head over to Turkey. Jeez, sure. what is uh, what's that all about? Some kind of uh, adventure? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish I could tell you more, but um, it's still we're not on wraps until April, and uh, then I'll tell everyone it's it's going to be a um a, a trip that people can go on and we're going to be giving lectures and going to ancient sites and we're going to be talking about um Ad, the the myth of Atlantis and this golden age concept and you know actually going to the places where some of these myths happened and or the or the historical things that they're based on and having a good time being initiated into the mysteries of the golden age so uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have a itinerary and prices and everything posted probably within a, a month or so. Nice, nice. Do you want to go a little longer or you got something going on? I was going to try and... Well, if you've got some more to say, then let's say it. I always have more to say, Tracy. That's my job. Now, not to get into the too predictive realm of things, but, you know, based on the economy right now, where do you sort of see things headed out as the year progresses? Because as we talked about earlier, you know, you're saying that things aren't going to improve, that, you know, the worst is sort of yet to come. We may see even worse, uh, you know, economic downturns and whatnot. So I guess what do you see that might happen and what should we look for as clues to this sort of stuff unfolding? Well, I'll tell you this. We, as the, the general public, we need to give up on this idea that it is going to get better by itself. It being, you know, the current system of, yeah. of uh, money and debt. It can't. There's $700 trillion worth of um, derivatives that can't be paid clogging up the international system. That's been true for years. And nothing that they've devised is ever going to fix it because the entire system, every time you create money, you're, you're creating more debt associated with it. So you can never get less debt. You will always get more. So it's got to die. And people have got to get over the fact that their pensions will collapse and their savings with their dollars or based on dollars are going to collapse. The value of their house is going to collapse. You need to get over it because <laughs> I'm serious. I know it's just such a harsh thing. You know, it's you know, it's like listen, you're gonna lose everything you have. Just get over it. I mean, but I guess I I mean I'm listening. I'm listening. Go ahead. Well, no, well, if you if you're someone who has a lot of resources and you've got it all in bank accounts and stocks and things like that, you need to put it into something 
physical that you can use or sell to someone who could use it in a, in the future world. Yeah. Because, you know, gas is going to be valuable. Property is going to be valuable, not as, in terms of dollars. Stop thinking about your house as how many dollars it's worth. It's like, can I live in this place for the rest of my life? Can my children use it? Can I sell it to someone in the future for something that I could use? You know, that's the way you need to start thinking about the real basis of wealth. And if you have money now, I would say transfer it into those things as quickly as possible because this collapse that I'm talking about is it's in process right now. And then, you know, the next big drop down could happen at any moment. They're going to have another wave of quantitative easing, which is printing enormous amounts of money out of nothing and then having the government itself buy it through its complicated, but they, they try yeah. to fake you out. They try to pretend that there's banks in the Cayman Islands and stuff buying these bonds, but they're really doing it on behalf of the Federal Reserve. So the, the Treasury is printing money. They're borrowing from the Federal Reserve in order to print that money, but then the Federal Reserve is buying the bonds that it's based on. So it's like it's like eating yourself, if we get back to alchemy. It's like this 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 Ouroboros serpent eating itself. <laughs> yeah. Now we are you are you familiar with uh, Bix Weir and his work at all? Um, someone else told me. It might have been me him. when we were setting up the interview. Road to Ruta and that whole thing. Have you looked into it at all? No. Please go ahead. Elaborate. Well, the gist of it is that, and I'm going to do a terrible job of this. I apologize to Bix. Uh, you should definitely check out his stuff. That there's sort of yeah, and you kind of alluded to this too earlier that there's sort of like these good forces at work behind the scenes in this in this system, in this economic system that's been thrust upon the world, and that there's people within the system that are aware of this impending financial collapse and are sort of you know have a plan to deal with it after the fact, and you know there's going to be this big collapse, and both sides, the good and the bad, have been orchestrating the collapse. Uh, you know, for their own purposes. You know, the good side realizes that the fiat system can never last, so it created the fiat system to sort of milk it for what it's worth, then collapse, and then rebuild. And the bad guys sort of want, like, a new world order. So, I mean, what do you what do you think of that? I, like I said, I probably butchered the theory in general, but that's sort of the the general idea of it. Well, okay, yeah, I, I I need to read about it more, I guess, but um, yeah, the general like, idea, I, I would say background. my reaction is, is this, that there are several factions of good guys and or bad guys and then several factions of people that consider themselves to be good guys. What that means is entirely relative and subjective to them. Because we don't know, we're not involved. They haven't they haven't initiated us into those mysteries of what they intend to do with us and our wealth at the end of it. Mm-hmm. So, as far as someone calling themselves the good guy and they're going to work behind the scenes on our behalf, um, you know, I reject that as being done in my name. I am the only one that can save me, and that goes for everyone else too. And the idea that some savior from another planet or from another secret society or the good, good witch of the West or whatever is going to come and save you without you having to understand these concepts and, and uh, save yourself is wrong. I mean, you can, 
anyone who arrogates to themselves that responsibility of manipulating the lives of others and deciding who lives and who dies and who gets to have wealth and who doesn't and how much the money in your wallet should be worth, um, those people need to be overthrown and never given any power. I mean, if you're asking what my opinion is in my value system, I think, um, you know, no, I reject that. <laughs> okay. Maybe they're trying to do it. You know, they can call themselves good and say that they're trying to do it. That's so, great, okay. You know, so, you're, that so you're saying like you reject the uh, you reject people who say they're doing it for good, but, I, but you yeah, don't reject I, the idea that there are people who think that they're doing it for good. Exactly. But yeah, you you want to work behind the scenes with your little secret society and your banker friends, trying to create a good system of international economics and international political control. Well, all political control and all banking as it's set up right now is about people owning other people and selling them without their permission. So if you think there's some good way of doing that, I disagree. Well, part of the road to Ruta theory is additionally that, you know, there's going to be this big collapse. The good guys – now I'm starting to remember a little bit more of it. Uh, the good guys, they're going to sort of bring the United States back into sort of a separatist – uh, situation where we're going to produce everything on our own. We're not going to get involved. You know, it's it, it, the reverse of a new world order, I guess you could say. Mm. And uh, I, I, I guess from what I can recall, Bix was saying that you know the the United States has plenty of natural resources, and that we've been sort of hoarding them all this time and using the rest of the world's natural resources because we knew that eventually this reverse new world order is going to happen because the good guys behind the scenes were orchestrating it. Hmm. What do you think of that? Does, does the United States have all these resources, or I mean, you're, you're sort of uh, you're, you know, you're up on all this economic stuff. I think we, yeah, we've got lots of resources, and that we would have a very robust economy if we only imported things that we actually needed from other countries, as opposed to like we were talking about earlier, shipping apples to China to be waxed and brought back. Right. Um, That's just no... sad. <laughs> Yeah, there's lots of stuff we could produce and consume here, and we could be exporting more as well. And uh, other countries could be doing that too, and then we could be wasting a lot less resources uh, in shipping things around. But it's like the resources aren't considered val to have any value. The only thing that has value is the artificial uh, illusory dollar. And, you know, that's what all of these economic policies are built around is people getting their hands on dollars and controlling the uh, the value of and distribution of dollars. And they're not thinking at all about how many actual resources, in other words, how much actual wealth is being wasted in order to do this. So I think it'd be great if, you know, in the future people in countries could take care of themselves more and be you know healthier and happier for it because they're not wasting resources and their and their labor the value of their labor would go up, you know that'd be great and it doesn't mean that we have to be isolationist or that we don't uh, communicate and, and interact with one another and quite the opposite the world is more interactive than it's ever been that's part of the reason why there's so many social revolutions going on right now is because anyone at any time can go online and get information about just about anything. 
And even things that used to be super secret and hard to find, it's just out there now. You know, yeah. WikiLeaks is a huge resource. And then you've got Facebook and things like that where it's making it just really easy for people in different countries to make friends and, and compare notes. And so you used to be able to, you know, a government could sort of keep their own domestic population ignorant of what they're doing in other countries or tell them a false version of what life is like in other countries. And that can't happen anymore. You know, I mean, some people might still believe the what the version they get on TV, but those are mainly older people. And, uh, you know, people like in their 50s and younger are online. They have tons of friends in other countries, and they have a way different perspective now because of that. And then you have this instant communication if you do need to have a social revolution, if you do need to have people... Uh, be able to coordinate something really quickly without having to physically be in the same space, you can do that now. So, you know, we're going to be a more cosmopolitan world than ever in the future, and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to involve a global supply chain of slave labor, you know? It that's not needed. Yeah, we just hope we can break the cycle and free ourselves from that global supply chain. Although you're kind of saying that it's going to fall apart anyway, right? Yeah, we don't. There's no effort needed on our part except to try to keep ourselves safe from the fallout. But yeah. the collapse is happening, and as it collapses, people are going to. They're going to still need to do business. In fact, more than ever, you know, you're you're going to have needs for goods and services to be produced locally. So, it's, actually, I think the recovery begins as soon as the collapse is allowed to happen. You know, that you can you can have local currencies created. And that'll start happening immediately, and uh, people can start doing business with one another. And that's the, the problem is that, you know, we, we're required by law to use the dollar for everything and to be involved in these systems of government and taxation and these rules about federal rules about, uh, you know, labor laws and how you can produce things. And there's so many rules, you know, and we're all trapped into this system that's just not allowed to change at all, even though it's not working and everyone's literally uh, dying. You know? Yeah. You know, their, their economic lives are dying because of this. If, you know, if you could just free yourself from that yoke that we no longer have to be pinned to this dollar, then that's you know then the invisible hand that uh, Adam Smith wrote about the sort of mystical force that underpins the economy where people act in their own self-interest to try to get the things they want in the best quality at the lowest possible price that if everyone is allowed to do that as an individual but the government is not allowed to come in with a force of arms and violently threaten other people to do what they want to try to create a monopoly system for certain for certain uh, you know rich people that they like that are contributing to their their uh, the politicians you know bank accounts and stuff. If you can get rid of that and the the artificial manipulation of the economy, then people's um, in following their own selfish desires is actually good. Because that keeps things in a, at you know high quality and low price, uh, but everyone still gets what they need. That's that's the ideal to me. That's like that would be the golden age. You know, if we could really have the invisible hand actually allowed to function. 
Well, is that what you think is going to happen when everything collapses, that, that a more robust and, and sort of natural economy will sort of develop? Yeah, yeah. I think the, the invisible hand, you know, operates – it's operating all the time. It operated in, in communist Russia. It operates in, in North Korea. It operates wherever people are. But it's how, – how well it is allowed to function is relative to how much government control you have and other – if you, if you don't want to call it government, then sometimes you'll have, uh, you know, corporate corporations that uh, do the same thing. They they gain control over the economy because they can pay police and soldiers to threaten other people and make them do what they want. And that's really the, the basis of government and corporate power, and it's the reason why our economy consistently always gets screwed up and manipulated so that you know, all all of the wealth that's produced by the people uh, flows in one direction only. It's confiscated through a system of taxation and and other things. It, it it's it's uh, it's channeled to the ruling elite, and always you know the people suffer. The people are never allowed to enjoy the fruits of their own labor. That's a corrupt system that comes from uh, greedy people colluding and then using violence to threaten other people. And that's the only reason why the invisible hand doesn't work. That's the reason why you can't have economic freedom. Yeah, but then when you think about it, hasn't it always sort of been that way? I mean, weren't there always kings and servants and everything else? I mean, you wonder if that's just the human nature, if you will. We're greed just, just you know, even if, we, even if the whole system collapses tomorrow and then we develop a new system, eventually that system will become corrupted as well and the whole process will start all over again, I think. Yes, that's why the golden age can only exist in a timeless state, a theoretical state, because it doesn't really ever happen. So is it more metaphorical? It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor that, that uh, it's a, well, I don't know. Here's what I think of it is. It's, it's in potentia. It exists in non-existence, but it it influences everything that does exist, just like this hidden kingdom at the center of the earth concept. I think it's real in the sense that, or I don't know, I guess you could say it's unreal, but it's like, it's, that's a part of our existence, you know? There's a, at the heart of every atom, there is something mysterious that you can't explain, and that's, that's going on in the whole universe, you know? Um, so the golden age exists in a timeless state at all times, and as far as us going into a new golden age now, of course, it would only be temporary. But it would be a start over. It would be from going from one dying system to a new one. And so you'd have, you know, the whole course of history then the next several thousand years for it to become as corrupt as it is now. Yeah. Theoretically. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be around at the start of a new golden age. Sounds like that would be a lot of setting things up and planning and everything else. You really want to be in the golden age in its prime, right? Well, I guess there's no time, right? So, but you know, right. what, well, <laughs> you know what I mean? The transition to the golden age is going to be difficult. So it's like, I don't even know if I'd make it. Me too. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think we've talked about it before. I, I don't uh, have the resources necessary to be able to survive. So I don't, uh, to survive such a cataclysm, uh, I don't know if I will. Um, now, what but, do you now in light of all this sort of idea of changing of the ages and, and that sort of thing? You know, I'm tempted to to bring up the infamous 2012. I mean, what do you think of that? Does this somehow tie into all this in a way? 
I think it may in a way. It's you know that's the sort of thing that it would be asinine for me to make a real prediction. Although I'm writing about the symbolism of it and the connections of it in a future article that that you will see soon. But um, I'm not going to just make an ass of myself and say what's going to happen on 20. No, no, no. I don't mean that. I just mean, I mean, looking. Yeah. Have you looked at it in the sense that is there some connection here between that? Those myths and legends of, of of a change of an epoch to to what you're talking about with the age of Saturn and and, and all this other stuff. Well, well, there's some connection. Um, one of the things I wrote about in the past when I did Dagger Bear's Revenge magazine, I wrote about I decoded out of uh, s- some literature from the secret society called the Priory of Zion that they had apparently this secret of a of a calendar that it seemed to me it was a calendar that we haven't yet gone into but it can perhaps in the future it could actually correspond to the year and it's really it's a calendar that's sort of observed but it's not practical right now it's the uh lunar calendar you know oh yeah i'm a big fan of lunar calendar yeah 364 days in the year and you know 12 or 13 months of exactly 28 days each every week is the same starts on the same day of the week and everything and one day out of time right exactly but but um what i what i wrote about in my article a long time ago was theorizing well what if uh things just change slightly the orbit and the tilt and everything just change slightly on our planet so that maybe in the future we could have what they call an alicot calendar which is when the solar calendar and the lunar calendar correspond exactly and right now they're a day and a few hours off. The lunar solar calendar is a little bit longer. So, but what we've had recently, uh, interestingly enough, is we keep having incidents that cause minor shifts in the tilt of the axis, the weight of the Earth, the shape of the Earth, uh, and the magnetic pole. Right, right. Like and, the earthquake. Uh-huh. Well, and, okay, in my article, Years ago, that I wrote about this this concept that, that there's a, maybe a secret Priory of Zion calendar that's supposed to be used at a future age. I talked about Ophiuchus or Fucus, the uh, the serpent bearer, which um, is a constellation. And in some New Age theories, they think that uh, there should be a thirteenth zodiac sign, really, because the zodiac doesn't correspond to you know mm-hmm. the way it was back in ancient Babylon when they came up with the thing, and that's been true for thousands of years. The zodiac has been wrong for thousands of years, but for some reason, uh, around the turn of this last year, around uh, the beginning of January, there was um, I don't know there was a there was a big change in the magnetic pole yeah uh, you know i mean it wobbles around anyway but it was like a, it was a it was significant change in, in one day it was it was bigger than normal and they had to like recap recalibrate airports and stuff. on airports and stuff mm-hmm. yeah on, on airplanes so and then right around that time that happened the minnesota planetarium society came out and said we need to change the zodiac that everyone observes because of this pole shift and there really should be a another zodiac sign in there. And so that was a story in the news for a few days, and I don't know if it really caught on, but, uh, uh, well, I don't know. I get spam frequently where it says, your zodiac sign may have changed, so it must be popular. <laughs> yeah, it, it created quite a meme, and then, you know, and, and accompanied by a lot of various sort of arcane conspiracy theories, uh, you know, about what, right. what it was all about. 
You know, like well, it, there had to be some. What's the reasoning behind this? Whether it's some planetary change that's about to happen, or we're undergoing, or is it, you know, something else? Who knows? You know. Well, I had said that. Uh, yeah, I think maybe there is, you know, some elite cabal somewhere that decided that maybe we should we should bring in Ophiuchus or, or Fucus now, because in the Priory of Zion literature I was talking about. That's one of the things they mention. They say that we should have a 13-house zodiac sign, uh, zodiac system with Ophiuchus in it. And uh, there's a, a, a poem that the Priory of Zion published called uh, Les Serpent Rouge, where they have each of the stanzas is dedicated to one of the houses of the zodiac, and Ophiuchus is one of them. So I thought when I was, you know, finding the clues in their literature pointing to this calendar, and it was really arcane. I, I mean, I'm the only one who ever found it. I don't think anyone else had had even guessed that this thing was in there. And uh, they, but they talk about Ophiuchus too. And I thought, well, you know, this must be part of it. That in in a, in a future calendar system, you'll have each month associated with one of the houses of the zodiac, and so you have to add a thirteenth one in there. And then when this pole shift happened, and they started, this meme started popping up. You know, I thought, this can't be coincidence, because it, it, why do you need to bring Ophiuchus in now when it's been, when the Zodiac's been wrong for thousands of years? And here's an interesting thing uh, that I, I published on my website. Uh, someone told me that uh, there's, like, there's 12 images that came with the Kindle. That was the new version of the Amazon Kindle that came out uh, right around Christmas last year. Yeah. And uh, of those 12 images, they seem kind of random. There's like an author and a cathedral and uh, just different things, a bird or something, you know, yeah. just different things. And one of them is Ophiuchus. And, you know, what are the odds of that? That was just a couple months before the pole shift and the explosion of this meme. And there's no other zodiac signs in, uh, that, that are being used as screensavers on the Kindle, but... There's, you know, there's just 12 images, and Ophiuchus is one of them. Isn't that weird? It's strange. There's something to this story. It's, you know, you just wonder about who's pulling the strings, you know? what We don't know what their agenda is at the end of the day. It's scary. Yeah. And then the, the 2012 thing, I mean, um, I... Oh, I, I got into 2012 a little bit when I originally wrote that article about the 364-day calendar... Because you know how the Mayans have actually several different calendar systems, and then the the Mayan calendar that they talk about is really it's like this big circle yeah, with it's different all, rings in it, yeah. and each ring is a different type of calendar system. Yeah, it's all very confusing. Well, and then they all, but they all come to an end at the, at right now or in, at 2012. Um, so uh, anyway, I, I had sort of delved into that in my old article because one of the calendar systems, one of the rings on there is is a lunar calendar is a 364 day one so and then and then the, the number 13 has all sorts of important um symbolic meanings in the mayan calendrical system having to do with rebirth interesting interesting so yeah the the symbol at the very top of the um of the calendar the mayan calendar disc thing that they always show there's this little i don't know like carrot thing you know like a like an arrow pointing up, yeah. and that they call that thirteen cane, and that's like the central image. That's the starting and ending of the whole cycle. So, anyway, yeah, I think there might be some something to it. You know, I just don't know. I don't know what. I I certainly hope it's not horrible cataclysm, but I can't 
rule that out. And uh, in general, when when astrologically or astronomically, when an age passes over from one to the next, first of all, you only realize it after the fact, like hundreds of years later. You know, it was, in terms of it, has there actually been a social change? Right, right. Uh, yeah, you only realize that later. But the moment astrologically that one or one age changes to the next is very specific. You know, it's it's a it's a point in time. Right. So just like 2012 is, it's a point in time when, when maybe. Maybe that is the point where one age changes to the next, but that doesn't mean anything happens at that particular moment any more than something happens at midnight on uh, on New Year's Eve. You know, it's just a, it's an arbitrarily chosen moment that we where we say, okay, now it's the next day, and, but you know, you only realize later why one day is different from the other. Exactly. To leave people on on sort of an inf- informative note here, like we, we we didn't really get to what they should look for as far as warning signs here in the next few weeks, months, and uh, you know the rest of the year, if not next year or whatever. Uh, if if we're if we're on the precipice here, what what should people be keeping an eye on aside from like gas prices and stuff like that? Um, well, the release of QE3, the next explosion of liquidity, the next uh, multi. Hundred billion dollar uh, purchase of of bonds by the Federal Reserve itself of of Treasury bonds. You know that is another inflation bond that's going to be released, and the the pattern of states that are dying and going into hyperinflation is that things like that just happen more and more frequently. You know we just had a wave of quantitative quantitative easing a few months ago, and before that it had been like a year and a half. So we had the first one. So the, if we have QE3, then, you know, presumably QE4 will be uh, right on the heels of it shortly afterwards. And that's when things just start devolving. Uh, you know, um, but I'm not going to – I'm not Gerald Salente, so I can't <laughs> yeah. give you uh, specific advice about investments. And I don't claim to know what day anything is going to happen. But, um, you know, I also think that they are going to – they they're going to bring in the SDR, so you can you can look for the dollar losing a great deal of value, but at the same time, the whole global system will try to find a new equilibrium or a new footing with this new global currency. And the the U.S. dollar probably, at least in the beginning, won't cease to exist. It'll just be a domestic currency again instead of being an international currency. Or yeah. It will be it'll be kind of like the pound. Is right euro. now where, well, yeah, and the euro, like these are, um, these are part of the international monetary system's basket of currencies that they use. They like put them together, and they have a little algorithm that they use to try to determine how much everyone else's currency should be based on the relative values of those currencies in the basket. Now, the way it's been up until recently is you've got the yen and the pound and the euro and the dollar in the basket. Now, uh, the Chinese want the yuan in the basket as well. And every time you put in a new currency in the basket, that disrupts the or that changes the algorithm, right? It changes the relationship. And it, and it gives that currency a different uh, power in, in international currency markets that it didn't have before. And, of course, right, the way it's been up until now is that the dollar had an inordinate amount of power in the basket compared to everyone else. Right. Well, now it's going to just going to be brought down to the, basically the same relative level as everyone else's currencies in the basket. 
All right. So it's not you know, as scary yeah. as the last time we talked, but still pretty scary. Well, look, now, hey, scary <laughs> is relative, isn't it? Scary is That's relative true. because a lot of things have happened since the last time we talked that were scary at the time to think about, and now they've happened, and we're used to it, you know? I like mean, what? Like people how- all losing their houses and shit? Oh, yeah. People, yeah. The, um, mass unemployment. I don't know if you've been to the grocery store lately, but we're starting to get major waves of uh, food price inflation, which is one of the one of the factors in why there's social revolutions going on in the Middle East right yeah. now is those people, they can't even afford to eat. Right, right, because if you think our prices are going up, their their prices are going up too, and they make, like, nothing. So well, they're, they're they hurting make worse nothing. than they, us. Yeah, and they're spending, like, probably 70% of their income on food already, or they were before this happened. Right. And, so, yeah, um, that stuff is happening. Um the the reason why it doesn't feel any worse, I think, is because gas prices went down after the 2008. They didn't ever go down to you know two dollars or a dollar fifty like they were before. But this is the new normal. We're used to that now. Right, right. But so, but everything else has really fallen apart just more and more. And as far as the international uh, stability of of uh, other states, you know. That's, it really has changed a lot since last time we talked. You know, you've got Greece going down, Iceland, uh, Ireland, and, you know, the Euro, they're basically saying they need to phase it out. So things have, things have totally happened since the last time we talked. We just got used to it. You know, as it happens, it seems normal to you. So that's why I almost I don't want to make a prediction because it won't matter. By the time it comes true, you won't even feel like... Uh, some, you know, you won't say, oh, she told me that. It'll be normal, you know? Right, right. No, I wasn't asking you for predictions. Don't worry. I know, I know you're no Gerald Salente. <laughs> I like Gerald. I don't know. We, we shouldn't pick on him. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I love him too, and I can't, I can't hold a candle to that. I don't have the statistical knowledge to be able to say what future trends are going to be formed by current events. I can only analyze these sort of mythological and metaphorical basis behind it, and and therefore I can make a very general prediction about what the next stage is going to be. Well, you're fantastic at analyzing the mythical and metaphorical basis, as we've uh, established here in this conversation. So, you Thank know, you. I hope I kept up as well as uh, I thought I did. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think this has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it. So you got the new book here, Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge, and, and you got that not just as a uh, as a hard copy book, but also an ebook, and, and the, you're, you're in the world of Kindle, I assume, right? Yeah, yeah. We what we had done was we put out a limited edition print version that is completely sold out now. But there will be another one that's not limited edition soon that you'll be able to buy on Amazon. And uh, also, yeah, you can buy from us uh, an ebook version of it, or you can get a Kindle version from Amazon. Uh, if you're interested in supporting me in my uh, research. I could certainly use it, and uh, the best way to do that is to make a purchase directly from my website. You can go to tracyrtwyman.com to find out how to do that. And I also take donations. And uh, honestly, the best purchase you can make is an ebook or several ebooks because that's it's really pure profit for me. I'm not going to lie; it's a, it's an electronic thing that I send to you, and I don't have to expend any further resources to to get it. So I, I get to keep all of the money that you send me, less the PayPal, PayPal fee. But, you know, it's not uh, it's not like I'm 
I guess I guess I am sort of alchemically making gold here every time I I sell an ebook. But you know, <laughs> consider that I put I put uh, all the work into writing and hours books, yeah. into that. So you know, I I, I feel like uh, I'm. Uh, I, I, I certainly, if I get more more compensation for my work, I won't feel like I don't deserve it. <laughs> is I guess the way to to put it. So if you want to help me, it's it's certainly welcome and appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. You're like a farmer. You know, you've ten, you you've you've built the crop of the book, and now you you're selling it. You shouldn't feel bad about that. I mean, I don't see what's wrong with with that. Uh, the work, no, uh, no, the, the research is is tremendous, and and the books are outstanding. So. Thank you. Thank you very much. People should definitely uh, check them out. I gotta get into this Kindle thing. I haven't really uh, dived into Kindle yet, but the more I talk to you and, and other people, uh, it seems like that's the that's the new direction of books. Absolutely, I think it, yeah, it's a that's a brilliant new uh, development, and I'm pretty excited about it. It's gonna it's gonna keep publishing alive even as uh, everything else collapses. <laughs> So uh, what else? What, 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 do we, what do we have coming up from Tracy Twyman aside from the uh, the big trip, which uh, details will be revealed soon? What else is going on? What, what can people expect from you here for the remainder of 2011? Well, um, I'm developing these uh, these concepts of the new golden age and uh, and Saturn and the sort of the hidden kingdom concept. And uh, I'm getting into the black sun and the, the idea of there's theories about um, the role of electromagnetism in the universe that I'm learning about that actually tie into everything I just talked. I've been talking about about Saturn and the Golden Age. It's, it's hard to explain. You'll have to read the uh, article. But um, there are physics concepts that contradict um, accepted concepts right now of, about uh, nuclear physics and, and uh, the theory of relativity and everything. It's a, it's a different way of looking at the universe. And when you do, then you can actually explain some of the myths of the past in a different way. And I'll explain all of that in future articles. So you'll be able to read articles about this stuff over the next few months in uh, on tracyrtwyman.com. And then eventually a new book will be produced. And also um, we've got that trip coming up where we'll be actually uh, visiting some of these places and, and uh, people can hear lectures about it, some of the places that are involved and some of the historical sites that uh, that pertain to Greek myths of uh, of the past. Awesome. So, yeah, that's what i got going on. I'm going to develop these concepts further and uh, new books coming out and uh, hopefully get it all developed before the, the new age dawns and... Uh, here's here's one thing I'll, I'll throw out for you that I forgot to mention. Uh, December 23rd, 2012, that's uh, the end of the Mayan calendar. It's also yeah. the, the beginning of uh, Saturnalia. It's uh, the St. Dagobert's Day. But here's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. It is the 99th anniversary of the creation of the Federal Reserve System. Wow. Now, guess guess what? Okay, there's three standard lengths of a uh, a business contract in, in common law. And uh, the longest one is 99 years. In other words, you pretty much, uh, according to English law and, and American law, if you institute a corporation, it, the longest you can charter it for is 99 years. That doesn't mean you can't renew it at the end of the 99 years, but you generally... Uh, if you if you have such a charter, then you usually revise it and turn it into something else at the end of the 99 years. So the charter for the Federal Reserve System is about to be up on the very date that the Mayan calendar will end 
and you know, I find that hard hard to believe as a coincidence, but I don't know. I can't really explain exactly what it means. It seems to me like that it might tie in with what I'm saying, though, of, of the death of an old economic system and the birth of a new one. Very interesting, yeah. It's like... It's weird to think that these dudes who created the Federal Reserve 99 years ago, you know, what they're up on the Mayan prophecies and stuff. It's very strange. You, you know, you wonder, you know, how that I'm all not comes sure. together. Yeah, I'm not sure that they were. Maybe they just had a different uh, calendar of some sort. Uh, calendar, that, yeah, secret calendar in their own Masonic lodge or, or secret society that they were part of at the time that made them pick that date. Or maybe it was just the forces of the universe operating without their awareness. Could be. Well, Tracy, it's been great catching up with you and, and delving into these topics. i, I got to say, as I said at the beginning of the show, you are one of the sharpest people in esoterica, genre for genre. And every time I have a conversation with you, I feel like you're pulling me up to your level because you're operating on just just this this wavelength that I can only sort of glimpse and, and and get an idea of when I read your stuff. So, I mean, I'm just really amazed by the depth and, and the level of uh, of research and insight you have into so much stuff, especially a lot of these really arcane topics that I can't really wrap my mind around. Like I said, I feel like you pull me up to those levels when we talk. So. Hopefully, I'm Thank not you. pulling you down. <laughs> oh, not at all. Of course. No, I, I enjoy this very much. And, uh, yeah, it's been great having you back on the show. Obviously, this won't be the last time we talk to you. We're going to have you back on in the future. But, you know, best of luck during these tumultuous times. And hopefully, you know, next time we're talking, uh, we'll be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel on its way, and it won't be an oncoming train. That'll be great. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to Tracy Twyman for coming on the show and sharing so much information and so much of her time. Check out her website, www.tracyrtwyman.com. Fantastic website full of awesome info on all the stuff she has been talking about over the last couple hours here on the program. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And we got three emails here, so let's just dive on into the mailbag. First one comes from Stephen, no hometown listed, and here's what he has to say. I really enjoy your show and have listened to every episode. I enjoy the questions you ask and the guests you have, but I do have a suggestion and a question. Why do all your shows have two intros? First, there's the intro where you tell us about the guest and their background, talk about what you like about their book, their research, and all, but then you do basically the same thing again on the pre-recorded interview part of the show. It takes so much time up that can be used for longer interviews. I just thought I'd ask and hope you can address this on the show itself. Thank you, Stephen. Well, thank you for writing in, Stephen. I appreciate your feedback. I uh, am appreciative also, obviously, of your longtime support of the program. And you definitely raise a very interesting question. I guess the real reason why we have such long intros at the beginning uh, of the pre-recorded part is just a matter of habit. That's how we started doing the program with those sort of short summaries of the impending conversation. And over time, they've just gotten longer and longer as we've taken care of in-house notes at the beginning and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I've become cognizant of the fact that those intros at the beginning are definitely getting a little bit too long. So I'm going to try and cut those down. Although you do raise sort of perhaps a misconception here where you say that that time can be used for longer interviews. The pre-recorded parts at the beginning of the show are taped well after the interviews. So there's really no correlation between the length of one and the length of the other. 
they're really unrelated. Although I agree with you on the point that sometimes a lot of stuff seems to get repeated or just a lot of ground seems to get recovered between the two introductions. And I've become more and more, as I said, cognizant of that. And I'm trying to do my best to tighten up those intros and get folks right into the conversation. Because I know a lot of people tune in to hear that and just zip right through the pre-recorded introduction. Believe me, I'm well aware of that. So I'm going to try and tighten those up and hopefully get people right into the meat of the episode as soon as possible. You know, the show is an evolving beast, and the more I hear from folks with these kind of suggestions and stuff, the more it affects me as I move forward in how we put it all together. So I appreciate the feedback, Stephen, and thank you for being thoughtful about it and not being rude about it or anything like that and really coming at it with an inquisitive mind. Next email comes from Andrea, no hometown listed. Here's what she has to say. I'm a newcomer to the show. I've been digging through the archives, and I'm really enjoying it. Good, creepy stuff. I have a question. Is there a topic that seriously scares you? Something you hope isn't real? If so, what do you do about it? For me, it's the djinn. The thought of them scares the crap out of me. All I can do is try not to dwell on it and think good thoughts. Congrats on a great show, and looking forward to the rest of Season 6. Andrea. Thank you for writing in, Andrea. Welcome to The Fold. I hope you're enjoying your swim through the deep archives of BOA Audio. Tons of episodes there to check out, well over 150 programs, so chances are there's going to be some other stuff there that spooks you as you keep on listening. I gave it some thought, really, and there's not too much that particularly scares me, although I guess the idea of sort of being harassed or watched or something like that kind of creeps me out in the sense that I've heard from guests, you know, who say that they've been harassed by the government and stuff like that. Thankfully, that sort of thing's never happened to me, but it does sort of put me off a little bit, more than really the specific topics that we cover here on the show. I'm not particularly worried about UFOs or Bigfoot or Something like a global conspiracy, I mean, that's completely out of my hands. Something like 2012, you know, let's say there is some giant, disastrous, uh, world-shaking event where, you know, 90% of the population dies. What, what am I supposed to do about that? What could I possibly do about that? Really nothing. So I just don't worry about things that are out of my hands. The weirder stuff I find uh, that I look at with more fascination. So things like ghosts and UFOs and Bigfoot, I'm really just more intrigued by rather than frightened. But I guess the whole idea, you know, of government harassment, people reading your mail or listening to your phone calls, that kind of tweaks me out a little bit. Thankfully, that sort of thing hasn't happened to me, but certainly that's something that has sort of uh, gotten under my skin over the last few years. As I've talked to more and more people who've had some really chilling stories about odd coincidences, quote-unquote, that have happened to them over the years. Anyway, thank you for writing in, Andrea. Much appreciated. Keep an eye out for those gin. They have heard your call, and now they're probably hot on your trail. I probably shouldn't say that. Now she's going to be even more scared. So don't worry about the gin, Andrea. I'm hoping, for your sake, that they are more mischievous than evil. Final email this week comes from Lawrence. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. The Stan Gordon interview was awesome. Maybe you are just too young to remember this and to ask the question, but back in the 70s they had a TV show called The Six Million Dollar Man, 
and there were a series of episodes in which he encounters a Bigfoot, and then discovers that Bigfoot is working for ancient aliens who are hiding in an underground base. The episodes are on YouTube if you look up History of Bigfoot and Bionic Man. I just watched a few clips for the first time since I was like seven years old, and it is amazing. There is even an abduction-like scene in which Steve Austin is lying on a table, and the aliens are standing around him, reading his mind. I thought for sure you were going to mention this to Stan Gordon, since the show clearly ties Bigfoot with aliens. My guess is that the story was inspired by the PA events a few years earlier. Maybe you could watch it and then get that Hollywood and UFOs guy back on. Was his name Bruce Rux or something like that? He would definitely be worth bringing back. Thanks for the great programming. I know you deny it, but if you are indeed burning out, don't let us listeners bully you into keeping on with it. I am currently publishing a podcast about the Mahabharata, and I know that it will come to an end when I get to the end of the story. You, on the other hand, don't really have a good stopping point. You just need to quit when you've done what you set out to do. Maybe after you've interviewed Stan Friedman for the tenth time, you'll throw in the towel. Either way, take care. Lawrence. Thanks for writing in, Lawrence. Let me address your points here as we go along the list. First of all, I thoroughly enjoyed the Stan Gordon interview as well. thought it was fantastic and fascinating that this story had gone under the radar for so many years. I know a lot of people had heard about it, but you'd think it would be much, much bigger than it really is nowadays. Regarding the Six Million Dollar Man episode, that is definitely way before my time. I was born in 79, so I really uh, was not even cognizant of the Six Million Dollar Man Bigfoot storyline. But perhaps I'll bring it up with Bruce Rux next time he's on the show. Good callback on your part, Lawrence. Bruce is a good friend. We still keep in touch quite a bit, and we are working on bringing him back here for Season 6. So stay tuned for that, and... Since you have mentioned this story, I will try and bring it up to him when we get him back on the show. With regards to the whole idea of burning out, I just can't uh, go over this enough with you guys. I'm not burning out. The real story of 2011 so far here for BOA Audio is that going into this year, I really want to take the steps to make sure that BOA Audio can survive in perpetuity, that we can keep this program going over the next few years at least, and the only way for me to do that was to find sufficient funding on a serious level to keep the whole operation running, and that's what I've been doing. I've been working side gigs and side jobs to make that happen, and as that's gone down, it's been sort of hit or miss. It's been touch and go. We've been trying to find the right formula to make it all happen. I'm sitting here right now very, very confident that we have found the uh, the magic touch, if you will, on how we can make this happen. I'm working at a very awesome job right now that is very flexible and very supportive of BOA. So I feel like we're going to look back on these early months of 2011 and say, yeah, it was a rough patch, but it was what we had to do to make sure that BOA was here in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, and onward. There is no burnout on my part with regards to the world of esoterica and the paranormal. I'm still tremendously fascinated by this very mysterious world in which we live. And that's going to be borne out over the next few weeks and months as we continue onward here with the second half of Season 6. But I appreciate your support, Lawrence. I understand where you're coming from. And thank you for, you know, 
having my back, if you will. So those are the emails from the listeners. Thanks once again to Lawrence, Andrea, and Stephen for writing in. For all those folks out there who'd like to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio listener feedback, you can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. And if you want something a little more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. We call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. If you couldn't get the URL down just now, simply go to Banal of America and click the forum button. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook, so feel free to befriend me, follow me, and poke me. I'd love to hear from you on those awesome sites as well. Up next, it is the thanks portion of the program, so allow me to tip my cap and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolan, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. Tons of new columns up at BOA. Tons of new pieces in the works from the BOA staff. Tremendously detailed and quite in-depth from the awesome writers at Banal of America. We say it all the time here at the end of the show, and it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Normally, this is the part of the program where I pass the bucket around to the BOA Audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the franchise here and help us keep the whole operation up and running and freely available. But we're going to go in a different direction once again here at the end of the show since I am a part of this exciting film project with Paul Kimball and Red Star Films, Beyond Best Evidence, The UFO Enigma. This is a very exciting project Paul and I have been working on and it is going to be crowdsourced, which means we need donations from folks out there to make it happen. And you can find out more about it at Indiegogo.com slash UFO. That's spelled I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O dot com slash UFO. The gist of it is, is that we're going to be examining the various theories on what UFOs are with some of the brightest minds in the world of ufology. I know Stan Friedman's already on board and a whole bunch of other big names are lining up to be a part of this film. But in order for us to make it happen, we need donations from folks out there to actually create this film. So go to Indiegogo.com slash UFO or go to BanalofAmerica.com and click the Beyond Best Evidence button. It's right there on the homepage. And that'll bring you to the website with more information. And with this special campaign, each level of donation comes with a whole bunch of different perks that you'll receive as the film is being made or after it is completed. So be sure to check out the various stages and tiers of donation levels and find out perhaps what you could get for a small donation and the cool stuff you get as the donations get larger and larger. Beyond Best Evidence, the UFO Enigma, this is your chance to help us make a UFO film that is not beholden to the cable networks and is more in keeping with the true spirit 
of Banal of America and our many, many friends and supporters. Next week on the program, we're going to be revisiting one of the more pernicious theories in the world of esoterica. I'm talking about the moon hoax theory. This was a guest that was suggested by one of the BOA Audio listeners. He is Jara White. Man comes from Australia. He is a hardcore moon hoax enthusiast, and he's got tons and tons of videos up on YouTube. We got linkage to his stuff on BOA right now. And I know some of you out there are probably rolling your eyes saying, oh, Jesus, man, moon hoax, banal, really? What is this all about? Well, let me tell you, folks, I went into it kind of with the same attitude. I'm not a big moon hoax fan myself. So I wanted to look at it from a completely different point of view, and that is we've all heard the moon hoax argument. We've all heard the Van Allen belt thing and the whole thing about the, the flag moving and the lighting and all that stuff. So I went into this conversation with Gerard White, who bills himself as the grandson of the moon hoax theory, with the intention of finding out more about moon hoax theory itself. Where did this come from? How has that evolved? If Gerard White is the grandson of moon hoax theory, then who is the father and the grandfather of this field? And how do they all feel about the really lackluster standing that moon hoax theory has in the world of esoterica and in the mainstream. Altogether, you're going to hear a real fourth wall smashing edition of the program. We're not going to go over a whole bunch of ground that has already been covered in any other moon hoax discussion you've heard out there. I'm sure we touch on some of the theories that are prevalent in moon hoax research, but the big dog of this conversation is moon hoax research itself. What is this all about? How could it ever be resolved? Just a whole bunch of sort of real deep questions about the moon hoax theory. So I hope folks check that one out. Don't roll your eyes. Give it a chance. I think you're going to find it tremendously enlightening. That's next week on BOA Audio, Jarrah White talking about the moon hoax theory. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks once again to Tracy Twyman. Big thanks to Andrea, Stephen, and Lawrence for writing in for BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, super huge, monumentally appreciative thanks to the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the ones who are tuning in right now, the folks who have had unending support of this program. You guys are awesome. I cannot thank you enough for what you do for this program. Thank you so much for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.